I'm from a small town in Tennessee, a long way from the suits in D.C., but close enough now to see this mess. Where I stand, the mound's getting steeper, they grab a shovel, dig the hole a little deeper, just to bury my kids right up to their necks. I might not be a political man. All right, welcome everyone to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. So today is the 22nd of September. I've uh, edited a bit on the intro. I'm trying to get things done. So many things to do. Um, lots of fronts that I'm working on. There's just so much. So. I just wanted to say we have a lot of news to talk about uh, and a bit of traveling down through time so that we understand what is happening right now in respects to the Supreme Court pick and um, what is to come. Uh, I think a lot of people don't seem to remember history and uh, uh, the precedent that was set by other presidents uh, in respects to Supreme Court picks and when and how and what. So we need to be visiting that, definitely. So I thought, what best way to do that? I think the best thing we can do is travel into time and see what President Eisenhower had done because a lot of people seem to forget. So let me get that done so we can see and understand just where we're at. We're going to open up with this today. I'll post the link of the video in the chat. What's fascinating about the Eisenhower appointment is that suddenly an opening appeared on the Supreme Court when Sherman Minton due to ill health, left only three weeks before the election in 1956. And not only did Eisenhower make an appointment, he made a recess appointment. That is, the Senate was in recess, and presidents are allowed to do this. He made a recess appointment of William Brennan, who would end up becoming one of the most liberal justices ever. And supposedly Eisenhower once said, when asked after leaving the presidency, did you ever make mistakes? There is perhaps an apocryphal story, but it is told that he said, yes, I made two of them and they're both on the Supreme Court, Earl Warren and Bill Brennan. Um, but it's fascinating that Brennan went on to serve well over 30 years. Now, we should also back up to say that recess appointment was then ultimately approved a few months later when the Senate came back into session. But again, only three weeks before the presidential race, Eisenhower couldn't say for sure he was going to be reelected, and yet he, he went ahead and made an appointment. And then I would say in the midst of this kind of legitimacy spectrum would be the current situation of Barack Obama, also with other presidents, including George Washington. So in this list, we have George Washington and Andrew Jackson and Grover Cleveland and Ronald Reagan. These were presidents who had served their two terms either by tradition, that is the tradition set by Washington, or by constitutional amendment that they could only serve two terms. And they are in this position, they're in the final year of their term, the final year of their second term. They cannot run for re-election, but an opening appears on the bench. And I think we want to point out that even George Washington made an appointment, in fact, made two appointments in that period.
That was interesting. That was talking about uh, presidents that were not coming back, that had exhausted their two terms, and um, then making a SCOTUS pick. That's basically what was going on there. Uh, it is uh, quite interesting how joining things, us now, Senate Judiciary Committee. One moment, how things I was going to put on Lindsey Graham again, how things are evolving and how it's being done. Uh, we see that you know nobody wants him to pick SCOTUS. I mean, if he's up for re-election, he has every right. The question is, uh, you know, how uh, can someone who's not being re-elected, who's you know, on his final leg just a couple weeks beforehand, get that right, which they don't. And that's why Barack Hussein Obama didn't appoint someone. Uh, but even though there was precedent for it, obviously it was Hillary's turn. So she was the one that was supposed to do it. Um, <laughs> hence, uh, Barack Hussein Obama bending over. Did I have said that? Yeah, of course I should have. Bending over and letting her take the wheel. So uh, let's see. Uh, what's going on in other news in respects to, hey, my favorite, he knocked it out of the park. I mean, it was pretty, it was pretty awesome to, to watch how they're dealing with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death. I mean, the left has lost their mind. Sad moment because death is always sad, no matter who dies. Death is coming for all of us someday. For that reason, we ought to mark a person's passing with a bow of respect. Take a moment for humility and perspective. Meditate on the fragility of our own lives and the lives of those we love. Remember that death is the one thing that unites every human being. No matter how powerful we imagine we are, at some point, we will be gone, all of us. In our case, we almost never agreed with Justice Ginsburg's decisions, but on Friday night's show, we did our best to show some reverence because that's the right thing to do. The left, by contrast, made no attempt at all. Prominent progressives immediately descended into hysteria and rage, unbridled rage. They told us that Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death was more than sad. They said it was a national crisis that imperiled this country's freedoms. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they told us, single-handedly kept America from descending into fascism and tyranny. Now that she's gone, only her words can keep us safe. That's an odd claim if you think about it. This is supposed to be a democracy. No one ever voted for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. No matter how much you liked her or agreed with her, she was, in the end, a single judge in a country of 350 million people. She was not God. Yet, according to the left, Ginsburg was all we had. We must obey her dying words as if they were a religious text. Her final wish supersedes our founding documents. What would Ruth Bader Ginsburg do? We must ask ourselves that and then do it. Watch. As a nation, we should heed her final call to us, not as a personal service to her, but as a service to the country, our country, at a crossroads. Honor her last words, that she not be replaced until a new president is installed. She said, my most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced by a new, until a new president is installed. We believe that. Her fervent wish is that the next president pick. That was the last thing she said to the public. We know who this man is. We know who this man is. This is a man who does not care about a dying woman's final wish, clearly. So 
turn down the volume and consider for a moment the reasoning here, the argument that they're making. Nothing is more important than our Constitution. That Constitution is in grave jeopardy. That's why we must substitute an 87-year-old woman's final wish for the constitutionally prescribed process for filling a Supreme Court seat. That's what they're arguing. Got that? Amusing. Keep in mind, we don't really know, actually, what Ruth Bader Ginsburg's final words were. Did she really leave this world fretting about a presidential election? We don't believe that for a second. If it were true, it would be pathetic because life is bigger than politics. Even this year, we wouldn't wish final words that small on anyone. So we're going to, again, choose to believe that Ruth Bader Ginsburg didn't really say that, that in real life, she was thinking at the end about her family and where she might be going next human concerns, not partisan ones. But in practical terms, it's irrelevant what she said. Ruth Bader Ginsburg doesn't get to pick her replacement from her deathbed. That's not how it works. We have a constitution we're supposed to be defending, remember? And that's the whole point of the constitution. If Justice Scalia had said something like that, nobody would have cared. We would have been embarrassed for him. Thankfully, he didn't say that. On some level, Democrats know all this. All this talk about Ginsburg's dying wish is ridiculous and insulting to all of us and our country, and they'll stop soon. Democrats have an alternative argument at the ready, and that's one they've been honing all year. It goes like this. Do what we want or we will hurt you. That's the real argument they're making. Reza Aslan, a longtime CNN employee, wrote this in the hours after Ginsburg died. Quote, if they even try to replace RBG, we burn the entire effing thing down that effing thing being our country that we built. On Friday night, another Democrat tweeted instructions for how to begin that process. Quote, we're now walking to Mitch McConnell's house to protest. More than 120,000 people liked that post, shockingly. The follow came a few minutes later. Quote, his house is entirely dark, significant police presence out front. It's not clear that he's here. It's clear that he's not here, as confirmed by a neighbor who is not fond of him. People are going home. That's not a protest. That's a threat. The point of it was to terrorize Mitch McConnell and his family. McConnell knew it was coming because that's how things seem to work now. The police guarding his house are probably the only reason it's still standing. Watch. We shouldn't be surprised by that. It was just last year that another group of Democrats gathered outside Mitch McConnell's home chanting death threats. It was all on video. We put up with it, of course, so it's happened again. You get what you put up with. That's true of children. It's true of countries. And we're putting up with this, so we shouldn't be surprised. Who's doing it? Well, Trump voters are fascists, they tell us. But when was the last time Trump voters threatened Democratic politicians in their homes? It's hard to recall that happening. No. The tactics are always the same, and it's always the same people doing it. Then in case Mitch McConnell didn't get the message, Biden voters assemble at the home of Senator Lindsey Graham. Graham chairs the Senate Judiciary Committee. They wanted to honor Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dying wish by making sure that Graham was intimidated. Watch. (laughs) 
These aren't spontaneous demonstrations. No, of course not. They're organized on social media and they're happening for a reason. The Democratic Party has encouraged this extremism over and over and over again. Nightly, we tell you about it, but it never ends. It gets worse. Last night, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York held a press conference targeting Mitch McConnell by name. Hard to imagine that, but it happened. And Schumer invited Sandy Cortez, a first-term congresswoman from the Bronx. Here's what they said. If you want to get back at Mitch McConnell's blatant, nasty hip hypocrisy, call your senator and tell them not to listen to Mitch McConnell, not to be afraid of Mitch McConnell. And to Mitch McConnell, we need to tell him that he is playing with fire. We need to tell him that he is playing with fire. Really? That's a threat. And on Instagram, Sandy Cortez, America's most pampered revolutionary, went ahead and suggested that Democrats go further, maybe even embrace violence. Watch. Let this moment radicalize you. We need to focus on voting for Joe Biden. I don't care if you like him or not. This is not over. You know, we win in November. I'm sorry to tell you, you're not going back to brunch. We're not going back to brunch. That's not happening. We're not going back to brunch. So now you know what a freshman member of Congress was doing standing at the podium with the most powerful Democrat in the Senate. Why would he choose Sandy Cortez? Well, because Sandy Cortez doesn't simply represent a congressional district. She doesn't do that very well. No, her real role is as commander of the youth wing of the Democratic Party, the direct action wing. The thugs who have spent the last three and a half months burning and destroying, in some cases killing, on behalf, effectively, of the Joe Biden for president campaign. Cortez and her followers use these tactics for one simple reason. You know why? Because they work. This summer, a bar owner in Omaha called Jake Gardner was attacked during a BLM riot there. A man called James Spurlock jumped on Gardner's back and put him in a chokehold. Gardner shot Spurlock in order to save his own life. It was clearly self-defense, and that's what prosecutors concluded. But then Biden voters took direct action. They took to the streets. What does that mean exactly? Well, in this case, it means they gathered outside the home of Douglas County attorney Don Klein and they threatened him. Their presence was a threat. And guess what? It worked. Last week, Gardner was charged with manslaughter. This weekend, Gardner killed himself. See how that works? Do you want to live in a country like that? Megan Hunt does. Megan Hunt is a state senator from Omaha. She so I wanted to pause for a second. See, what the left did to that man is inexcusable. But it is a tactic that we see way too often. And it is a tactic that the right is using too. They harass people, like Isaac Cappy, for example. There was a, a big push for two years and the usual suspects, you know, uh, you know, twinkle toes, defangos, you know, all these troll farms and they harassed him to the point that he was contemplating, do I want to live? Do, do I really want to live? He was depressed and to the brink of, I want to take my own life, which is exactly what they want. They harass you and humiliate you to kill yourself or put yourself in a position where you're so desperate and so sad that if they staged a suicide, no one would not believe it's a suicide because you were so depressed. Hence why people say, well, Isaac Cappy took his life 
uh, even though for two years he was enduring it and he had a great support system, but because he was so depressed, it had to be suicide. See, this is how they work. This is how they end up with people blowing their brains out, you know, in a front yard. And this is why they come after you. These, this, this trolling that happened to this man was horrible. And the question is, well, why did he kill himself? Well, he may have been just way too weak to wait for the president to help him. But also, it didn't help because there were people on the right as well that were not assisting. Where were they? Where were they? See, the same people that went after Cappy and this man are the same people that went after Millie Weaver, Patrick Berge, and myself. So this has happened over and over. And this is people that you that you know. There's people that you've never even heard of. And the president has said this a lot. You know, you haven't even heard of it. If you guys knew how badly I've been harassed since 2017 when I sent that email and I started up, you have no idea. You have no, what you saw was, was nothing. That was nothing. So by people, exactly. That's perfect. Silence is complicity. Exactly. We're supposed to be sticking together. We're supposed to be where we go one, we go all. We're supposed to be supporting each other. See, the funny thing is there are so many people out there that could be whistleblowers. So many. Thousands. Tens of thousands that could come out. And yet there's only a handful of us fighting and talking and being out, out there and saying all these things constantly. And so these people have a target on their back. Everyone does. Everyone who is pushing for freedom and transparency and to hold these people accountable, you know, they're putting their lives at risk, their livelihoods, their lives, their families. Why? For, for the sake of the nation. It's love of country. I mean, that's all over my, you know, profiles, love of country. That man should not have committed suicide or pushed to make it seem like he committed suicide. We should have been there holding his hand. We should have been there to say, it's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. Gang stalking, cancel culture is a very real thing. And it's not just the left that does it. That his case is an example of what happens. And, you know, for example, Austin Steinbart, right? He's in jail right now. No one, no one cares. Oh, he said he was Q and, you know, maybe he's not Q. Maybe he is Q. Maybe he's part of the Q team. Maybe he's not. It doesn't matter. The thing is, he's a man who's in jail right now for asking for his product back. Think about it. Why is he in jail? Because he asked Datto to give him back the files that they stole? Because that's exactly what they're charging him for. For dogpiling on a business? So, wait a minute. When these leftist blue check marks come out to boycott and harass people, it's okay and nobody gets arrested. But this guy is getting arrested because he has some of Hillary Clinton's emails. Okay. So he's in jail. Now, whether you think that Q's some all-seeing old guy, maybe some really beefed up Delta Forces guys or, you know, whatever, doesn't matter. Forget who he says he is. Forget everything. At the bottom line, 
He's an American whose rights have been railroaded, right? And he's sitting in a prison for something he shouldn't be in prison for. But because people are butthurt and they want to control narratives because we see it on all ends, you know, they attack. Oh, if you follow or you talk or you say, well, you're you're like, what was it? Jordan Sather that came after me saying you interviewed Austin Steinbart and he's not Q. And it's like, who the hell are you, dude? I know who you are. I know everything. I see all your chat groups. I see all your communications. I'm not going to sit here and slander you, but you don't know me. And what makes you an expert on Q again? I'm sorry. Yet he sits there in jail and nobody cares when he's just a person who's actually done nothing wrong, really. Nothing. Why is it wrong to say, hey, friends, let's get with this company. We need to get this back. Don't we do that all the time? Don't we do it all the time where we tell our friends, yo, let's boycott this. Let's send emails to this place because we're not happy with it. What about Netflix? The the cuties thing. Everyone emailed, called, canceled. Why aren't they in jail? Why aren't you in jail? So the matter here is that when we're supposed to be united in a time where they're separating us, there are people that need our help and no one is coming forward. There are people that no one is helping. People that may not be heard by what I have a thousand people right now live Maybe they have one person, maybe they have 10, but we are supposed to be standing by each other. There was a graphic that someone sent where it was five people crossing over a cliff, you know, like from one cliff to another, and they were holding a stick. So two people were on the other side, two people were on the side before, and the middle guy was just hanging from the stick over, you know, sudden death. That's how we should be supporting each other. If, we, if someone is putting out a message that is there to help us, to help our nation, regardless if you like their face, their voice, th- whatever, you support them, especially when they're down. All of us should be supporting everyone because that man shouldn't have died. I, I can't believe that Austin is still in jail. I mean, look at the indictment. Read it. Oh, he told his people to send emails or call, you know, Datto to give back the file. So who cares? People do that all the time. Read the indictment. There's nothing else in there. They're just putting him on the side. Regardless, you don't, he could, he could, he could be lying about who he is. He could be a, a failed operation of the DIA to penetrate the movement. He could be anything. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. It's always message over messenger. Now, do you like his message or not? Nobody cares. The bottom line is bare bones, down to the core of it, strip it all down. It's an American that has rights that are being railroaded right now, and no one is doing anything about it. Because, you know, oh, he's just crazy. He just, uh, yeah. Well, look at me. I've got 200,000 followers. Like, that guy's totally not cute. Nobody cares. He's still an American. And that's what sucks. Because what? Are we going to, uh, you know, have tons of people like this man who obviously was defending himself, self-defense, self-defense, and suddenly he's looking at manslaughter and going to jail and he killed himself. You know, people are saying people are confused. They're not sure what the truth is. Forget what anybody is saying. Nobody cares. Okay. 
forget their message, forget their face, forget everything. At the, at the end of it, they are simply a person, simply a person, an American. That's the problem. That is the problem that we have a simply an American support. We pray for him. You know, if any of us can make phone calls, any of us in Arizona, find out how he is. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And, 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 you know, and people stick to, to the boards like they do the Bible sometimes. Sometimes we allow infiltration in our own groups and let them think they're getting away with it only to follow them back, you guys. Still, you don't recognize, it's okay. The bottom line is we have individuals that are American citizens, regardless if someone dissed someone or anything. Nobody cares. Nobody should care. Nobody. You should care about your fellow American. That's where the outrage should be. The outrage that a person's right has have been railroaded, regardless of who they are. They could be a lefty that screams in the middle of the street. Say, I want to go out in the middle of the square and start screaming. I have every right to do it. Every single right to do it. So they collect someone because they're an insane leftist and they sit there and it's that lady with the blue hair thumping her fists. You know that gif, the really round lady that's screaming. Okay. And then she gets arrested because she was standing in the square with blue hair. You're going to sit there and laugh at it? You're going to say, well, she deserved it. She's crazy. More than 80% of you are when we shouldn't. We should say even that crazy liberal that wants to kill babies every month that she can, that wants socialism, that wants communism, that wants free everything, that wants to be assigned a job and a university still has rights in our nation. We cannot be hypocrites. No matter how much we want to, we cannot be hypocrites because this is pure hypocrisy. Because even through the messages, some people are like, well, you know, QAnon dissed him. And how do you know what's factual action? Oh, man, I can't get into that. Uh, I don't like getting naked. But the bottom line is what we should be looking at is the core. We should be providing support to our fellow Americans. Obviously, the patriots we see, obviously, the people we see. But regardless of their belief, their color, their, their wanting communism, they still have rights. And all of us should be behind that. Because when it comes down to it and you have to pick, you know, are you going to be the person that trips the liberal so that you can survive? Will you do that? You see what I'm saying? It's very important you remember this conversation coming forward, going forward. Because this is where your morals will be tested. Your morals will be tested on this coming soon. And so it's really important that we realize just how devastating it is to see humanity crumbling, even with a simple thing. We don't like, you know, we don't like Austin Steinbar because he says he's cute. We don't believe he's cute. We don't believe he's part of the cute. Okay, fine. Don't believe it. That's fine. That's totally fine. I, I'm of it. We don't care. He could say that he's Gandalf. He could sit there and say that he's reincarnated Gandhi. You can turn around and tell me that you're Napoleon Bonaparte, whatever you want. 
if your rights are being violated, it's my business to be right there. So the time for you to stand by your moral code is coming very soon. And, you know, you shouldn't be throwing stones, man. If any of you out there can throw a stone because you've got nothing, mm, there's, there's, there's no one. So I'm, I'm trying to explain to you that very soon this will be tested. And your patriotism, if it can only go so far with the little groups or whoever has American flags, whoever served, whoever's working for you, if that's as far as you'll go to protect rights, then it's not really patriotic. Because, you know, free speech is messy, dirty, disgusting, appalling. But I'd rather have disgusting, messy, ugh, free speech than no free speech. And uh, there are people that don't deserve rights, per se, because of what they do with them. But I'd be fine with having 25% of the population taking advantage of their rights and maliciously using it as opposed to the rest of the 75% of myself not having it. So, again, I, I, you know, all of these people, just, I, I just mentioned, the gentleman <coughs> that Tucker Carlson just made clear, they bullied this man, they gang-stalked this man, gang-stalked his attorney who should be fired, disbarred, and jailed and held responsible for that man's death, along with all the gang stalkers. That's organized crime. And it's the same groups, like Isaac Cappy. And even Austin Steinbart going to jail. Who do you think reported him? Hmm? Do you want me to name names? Because I can. For those of you stalking, I can name your names. Everything you say on Twitter, every person you report, every file you file with the FBI is documented. I can pull that out if you want me to. I could post it all over the place and whatever you think or how important you are won't save you. Because the one thing people do not take kindly to is betrayal. Betrayal. See, everybody makes mistakes, but betrayal is a big deal. So sometimes it's too messy. To, to pull people's pants down. You have to let them pull it down themselves. So again, anyone who made reports because he was saying he was Q and they were upset, there is documentation of everything. So why the man is now in jail, there is documentation of everything. And your little stupid groups aren't going to save you. Because it will come a time, there will be a time where this will come out. So no one's a saint. I'm definitely not a saint. I would tango with the swamp like nobody's business. I was their henchman. And like I said, I always adore redemption. Always adore redemption. There's always time to fix things. There's always time to... Rectify the wrongs you've done. For example, in my building, there's like a box place. I'm just going to put it out. So when you get a package, there's a, a little thing. You put your code in because it's going to you and you get it and it's a package, right? So 
yesterday I went and got two packages. One was uh, a letter from someone and another one was a package from Amazon. And I was like, oh, that's probably my daughter's books. So I opened it up this morning and I'm like, oh, these are pretty cool sponges. Nah, 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 nah. I never ordered sponges. Maybe my daughter did. So as I'm making coffee, I use the new sponge, right? Doing the dishes in the morning. And I noticed that, you know, the UPS guy put it in the wrong account, right? This is just a simple example. So obviously I have somebody else's goods that they paid for. It's not my fault. So what am I going to do? I'm going to find those sponges and order them and walk them up to the guy and say, you know what? I didn't look at the label on the package. It was my box. I just opened it. I'm just going to go get it and just drop it off in front of their doorstep and say, sorry, I got your package by accident. I mean, I didn't need those sponges, right? But it's always good to make, you know, to fix something, even though sometimes you do things and it's not your fault. Um, but then you realize, well, I could have been more careful here. I could have been more careful with my words. Maybe I shouldn't have done that report to FBI cyber. Maybe I shouldn't click the report on their YouTube. Maybe I shouldn't have clicked the report on their tweet. You know, those things. It's going to be very important soon. Because when we separate, there's going to be a very rigid line. And it's going to be one for America, one against America. And you know what? Those that are against America, the liberals, the insane ones, the TDS ones, they stick together regardless. Regardless. But on our side, there's little pockets. Little pockets of, oh, what? You have to listen to me. I decode way better. I know this stuff. What? I break the news, not you. What? Oh, this. Oh, that, you know, you know, you know what I'm talking about. There's factions, kind of like the messages that I saw here. Well, so-and-so dissed him, so what do I care? Oh, well, so-and-so does spoke badly of Austin. Why do I care? Isaac Cappy, I didn't know about it. But yet, a lot of you people still follow people like Defango, Twinkle Toes, and other people that have harassed these people. You know, like I told you, Twinkle Toes was sleeping with someone to gain you know, blackmail to use it against that person when they were going up against Obama. Like, I don't know how else to spell it out. This is, this is how you have to see it. Stick with the America first, because if someone from the left side comes over to the right camp and they identify as a table lamp, but yet they want a free country to be able to call themselves a table lamp, you're going to embrace that table lamp. You know why? Because they have the right to be a table lamp. I'm, I'm, again, I'm sorry for this, but I had to say it. This is very important because it's going to be coming up soon. And the one thing that I see is that our For America, America First camp has been extremely infiltrated. And you don't see it. Tiny dancer. There we go. Twinkle toes. Uh, you don't see it. And uh, many of your comments say it a lot. Try to sit back. Don't say, oh, just sit back. Sit back. This is going to come up very, very, very soon. Very soon. She is glad Jake Gardner is dead. Megan Hunt congratulated the mob on Twitter for pushing Jake Gardner to suicide.
Hunt encouraged them to do it to others. As Hunt wrote on Twitter, and we're quoting, Jake Gardner is gone, but the white supremacist attitudes that emboldened him are still with us today, end quote. In other words, you know what to do. This should terrify you. Democratic leaders have decided that everything is allowed in pursuit of power. Nothing is off limits. Give us what we want or we will hurt you. In terms Nancy Pelosi can understand, that means maybe another impeachment. Some have mentioned the possibility if they try to push through a nominee in a lame duck session that, that you in this, the House could move to impeach President, President Trump or Attorney General Barr as a way of stalling and preventing the Senate from acting on this nomination. Well, we have our options. We have arrows in our quiver that I'm not about to discuss right now. Oh, impeach the president for what? For following the Constitution's letter. For doing what the Constitution tells presidents to do when there's a Supreme Court vacancy. Could that really happen? What would the trial look like? We accuse you of following the law? Probably not going to happen. Plus, he knows that. That's why she's got other arrows in the quiver, as she said. One of those arrows is direct force. On Saturday, California Governor Gavin Newsom's chief of staff tweeted this, quote, I am ready to fly to D.C. in the middle of COVID-19 and lay my body on the floor of the United States Senate to prevent a vote from occurring before the next term of Congress. End quote. If she did that, many would join her, and maybe they'll do it. Maybe they'll come to Washington and physically prevent lawmakers from voting. That's never happened before in the history of our country. It could happen now. People are calling for it. Does that seem like extremism to you? Yeah. But if it does, keep in mind, you're the extremist. You're the one who's willing to do anything for power, including use force. Here's Hillary Clinton neatly explaining that her sins are in fact your sins. What's happening in our country is incredibly uh, dangerous. Our institutions are being basically undermined by the lust uh, for power, power for personal gain in the case of the uh, president or power for institutional mm -hmm. uh, gain in the case of Mitch McConnell. Okay, so if you're following at home, just Okay, so even Hillary chimed in. These are the people that were happy that a man took his life. A senator put that together. These people will kill you, and they will have no problem doing it at all. And you know, someone actually said, why would you say that? Um, actually, it was very interesting. I was having a conversation with someone uh, in Michigan who was present at a meeting where only 30 people were in the room with President Trump and this one person was there. And one of them turned around and asked the president, why are you doing this? He's like, if I don't do it, I I'm going to go to hell. And so I tweeted out that there are many insiders that are currently working hard for the people, hundreds, and it should be tens of thousands. Again, that self-preservation. They will punish you. They will destroy you. And they will kill you if you speak. Few exposing them do deserves prayers because they're at war for you. Listen to the president, what he had said. I was an insider. In my former life, I was an insider as much as anybody else. And I knew what it's like, and I still know what it's like to be an insider. It's not bad. Not bad. 
Now I'm being punished for leaving the special club and revealing to you the terrible things that are going on having to do with our country. Because I used to be part of the club, I'm the only one that can fix it. I'm doing this for the people and for the movement. And we will take back this country for you and we will make America great again. In my former life, I was an insider. See, in my former life, I was not only the insider, but the person that did all their dirty work. And so it puts me a lot at risk. I hear people saying, well, if you work for them, you wouldn't be talking. No, I wouldn't because usually they take you out. But there's paper trail of all the stuff. Thank God, because sometimes when you use something for evil and it gets turned into good, it's a trap. You can't do anything. Now, they will attempt to do anything they can to take you down, take you down. You, you remember when I published Shadowgate, YouTube called it hate speech, which was weird because it was like there were no cuss words, hate speech against who? The military industrial complex demonstrating how they're organizing these groups, right? Makes absolutely no sense. I've been emailing to them like, why is it hate speech? Why was it taken down? Why this? Why that? YouTube made thousands of. Uh, like over $20,000 in like, wait a minute. If it's a percentage, the video itself made close to $5,000 in ad revenue. That would have been great. I could have given that to Millie and Gavin because they have no income now. Um, you know, they, they are pushing out videos and doing reports, but they were, they were canned. I was fired too. That could have helped them at least because the money that they got from GoFundMe is sitting in a law, you know, like at a law firm for legal stuff. They're not touching it. So they didn't even pay me the revenue that they already made. And anyone that sent stickers and whatever, I didn't get that either. Like the, the, I think it was like, what was it? $400 over a whole month of stickers or something like that, right? They kept that. I don't even get it because they said so. There's no way you can fix it. So they strangulate you everywhere. I had the same troll farm that started attacking me in 2017, paid troll farm, by the way, and there's evidence of that, by state actors, believe it or not. Uh, When they came after me, they went after my work. They not only went after my work, they went after my family's work. And so for me, they have taken away all my ability to work. I only have my one government contract, which is not you know, with COVID, not that lucrative, but all my private ones, they attacked. Yeah, I know that's theft. I said that too. Um, but uh, they, they attacked that, you know, Tiny Prancer, Twinkle Toes, his team and Defango did the same thing. They uh, plowed through everything. I mean, they paid off Scott Adams of Red State Talk Radio. I mean, how does, and Paul Preston, both of them paid off. This is how far they go. Look at InfoWars now. They're going tits up. You watch. You watch. And not because someone's coming at them, not because they did it. They did it purposely. But it was, you know, the two people that are that have entered there, they they took hold. I don't know. They're probably just blackmailing. 
Um, you know, Alex Jones, from what I know, you know, remember, just like President Trump said, I was an insider. I know all their blackmail. I know everything. <laughs> all knowing Tory. I peeked to the foe. I peeked forward just to be able to see how we can alter that forward. Right? You can only see as far as you are capable of seeing per se. So you have to understand that this is actual war and there are actual soldiers without guns, their mouths and their finger pointing are guns. When I tell you that Clapper and Brennan are going to perp telling you this is a fact, you're going to see those perp walks. You're going to see it. It's not going to be, come in, let's talk about it. It's going to be a perp, period. Now, bar better pull it because, you know, in October, there might be like a massive dump and it's like, ah, how do we hide this? And it's like, you can't. So, again, this is going to be very important going forward. Look into yourself and see what you really stand for. Uh, you like guns. You like freedom, freedom of speech, no matter how disgusting it is sometimes, right? You want to be free. You don't want to abide, but you want to be able to be a janitor or a, the owner of a new company that hands out janitors. This is the only nation you can do that with. If you want to be scrubbing floors all your life because you enjoy doing it, you can do that in America if you choose to, or you can even, you can be born into the projects and then in the end, be the owner of a company with people that scrub floors. You decide. You can be anything you want to be in the United States of America because it's not a communist or socialist nation. And I take this back to a tweet that I put out yesterday. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what people don't see is that they're creating factions. So if you guys remember NYCHA, right, New York uh, City Housing Authority, President Trump had his uh, personnel uh, tackle that in 2017. Now, what is NYCHA? That's where there's low-income housing, right? Uh, you know, people were living in devastating conditions. But these are people that can't afford housing. It's free. The government pays for it. So it's not like they're going to get, you know, a penthouse suite with marble floors. They're going to get their basic needs. Yet their basic needs shouldn't include mold and rats. That should be taken care of at least. But, you know, usually um, that's not taken care of. They have big issues. Well, here is how you can hear them tell them how they're going to take them into the green zone. I want you to listen to this carefully. A Green New Deal for NYCHA achieved plan. So AOC is part of this. I want to I want to explain. I want to I want to decrypt the message so you understand it. Okay, I want you to decrypt. I want to decrypt this message so you understand it. Take a listen. To not just revitalizing the, the bones of public housing, but it revitalizes the economic life of public housing. This is not a slogan. This is not a dream. This is a plan. Since public housing is such a big institution in New York, I think it would really like not only give jobs to people in NYCHA, but like it's also like working towards saving the world and like trying to make the world a better place for the next generation. I would absolutely support a Green New Deal for NYCHA. We can be a pilot program as how. OK, 
Okay, so what's Green New Deal? So think about it. It has to be um, economic on, uh, you know, sustainability, right? So what are they going to do? Have rain collection buckets at the top for plumbing and use sustainable pipes. So they're going to be relying on rainwater. I'm just saying this is what they're going to do. Uh, you know, your stoves are going to be economic. So we're only going to put two stove tops and you're only allowed to turn it on there because you have solar panels. And if they bust, we'll fix it at some point. You know, we'll see. This is what they're planning. Oh, you need to use compost toilets because that's better for the environment. Are you getting it? They're taking them down to bare bones survival under the guise of green. New Listen. Energy efficiency works. Eliminating nitrous carbon pollution will create an impact equivalent to taking over 400,000 cars off of the road. A Green New Deal for Nitro will achieve this by converting 100% of nitrous electrical use from natural gas to renewable sources. Anything that's going to empower Nitro residents to do for themselves and be able to build up your development is a great idea. You need to be unified tenants and housing management. People can join the fight by joining a coalition, by creating a coalition, by going to the tenant association. So a just society would look like having equitable living conditions where we can do the things that we need to do. We deserve more and now folks are aware. So these are people that are reliant on the government for housing. And if they need to cut back because, you know, it's supposed to be, yeah, do they get stationary bikes to generate electricity? That's what I'm saying. Uh, remember how I said that Agenda 21 was thrown out the window. It's Agenda 2030. I think I mentioned that in January or February, right? I think it was maybe February. Um, this is it. So they're trying to get people, yeah, dude, we're going to like revamp everything and we're going to fix it. You guys are going to have chickens. You know, you don't need to go out and we don't need to give you food stamps. You can slaughter your own chickens. You can, And they're going to create these casties of the people that are dependent on the government. That's everybody except for them. And see, they believe, they believe that this is going to be great. It'll be like living in a third world country. Remember, these liberals believe that, you know, pooping in your toilet and collecting it and putting it outside is, uh, you know, uh, great for the environment, which it is. Hey, whatever. Uh, fresh fertilizer, whatever. But when you actually translate that into a large group of people, uh, they'll get the new housing. With how did they say green, new, sustainable ways of living? That's what's happening. So, uh, NYCHA needs to be tidied up in the fact of, and I'll tell you what the problem is NYCHA in itself has gotten billions of dollars from the city of New York. And people are getting paid to maintain, to do things, to clean, to maintain the place. And they're not doing it. They're paying contractors to uh, clean the common areas, uh, pest control, changing light bulbs, changing, you know, moldy ceilings, you know, the whole nine yards. But they're not doing it. That is what President Trump found out. Now, the leftists are going to the poor people saying, oh, we're going to give you rad new bamboo housing. And, you know, and rainwater collection is illegal. But hey, if it's going to save the city money from piping it, they'll stick it on the roof because, you know, they're poor. And if they don't want to live like that, they should work harder. And at the time that they're going to want to work harder to not live like that, guess what? 
they won't be able to make that jump to the next casting. I mean, when I said Hunger Games was so legit, it's ridiculous. That's how it's supposed to be global. This nation's supposed to be producing this. You could see it from the European Union and how they work. They're like, yo, Greece, you make feta, but you know what? We've assigned cheeses to France, so why don't you back off of that? Why don't you plant strawberries instead? Yeah, I know you do olive oil, but so does Spain. So Spain's going to do the majority of it. You just get rid of all your olive trees, even though you're globally known for it, and just plant some carrots. And here's the money to change your farm. You see what I'm saying? They can alter what they want with their dictation. Uh, back in the days when they were rearranging things like this, uh, they uh, called it the packet delore. Uh, I, I know that we had... Um, a family almond farm and we were being urged to get rid of all the almond trees uh, because we have like, I think, um, well, it's pretty big because uh, it's, 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 it's a big piece of land and they wanted us to take it down and plant like green onions or something like that. And the European union was imposing it. So now in order for um, my, my uh, mom's side of the family, all of us to be able to maintain that land is it's like everybody's right. It's not like just mine. It's like me and all my cousins. Right. Um, it's like under a trust just for the family, under the family, we're not allowed to profit off of the, almond tree because the EU said so. Uh, instead, we're being taxed for having that property. I mean, my, my, uh, the trust is paying for it. I, I don't, you know, I guess it's my kids now and, and their kids, my cousin's kids, but nobody can profit off of that at all. You know, my grandparents had it and, you know, it's been in the family for generations and it's always been passed on. Just people just look at it. Um, it's in a general trust and that has to pay taxes. So everybody kind of chips in and pays taxes because you're not allowed to because you're not allowed to produce almonds because another nation has been appointed that. That is how the Hunger Games were. This place makes bread. This one makes steel. This one makes coffee beans. You know, you, you remember, you should rewatch that movie and see how they separated people and how they were. You can't make the jump. And then in the, in the, fir, in, the in section one, there are people like AOC and these insane Pelosi characters and Schumers that are above all and have lost their humanity and actually gather people from each of these divisions or nations to battle it out, to kill each other with one person left standing for entertainment, <laughs> you know, human hunting, a sport. So sign into that. That's pretty, that's pretty dire. So let's take a, let's, uh, let's take a five minute break. Uh, not five minute, a song break. And I'll see you guys. Just let's refill coffee and I'll see you in just a few minutes. I'm from a small town in Tennessee, a long way from the suits in DC. But close enough now to see this mess. Where I stand, the mound's getting steeper. They grab a shovel, dig the hole a little deeper. Just to bury my kids right up to their necks. I might not be a political man. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. So this is the second hour. Uh, yeah, I missed my little jingle, too. I just had to, like, bleep out uh, the radio stations uh, thing. I should be coming up. I mean, since I'm doing a lot more video, I'm trying to mainstream things and set things up. But I'm also working on stories because we're working on Shadowgate 3, uh, which is going to be 
explosive. Shadowgate 2 is done. It's being edited um, and pretty much done. Um, so Shadowgate 2 will have a trailer of Shadowgate 3. Shadow, it's always a trilogy, right? And usually trilogies, they're only good if it's, it's like Nightmare on Elm Street, right? Since this is a nightmare. Nightmare on Elm Street 1 was good. Nightmare on Elm Street 2 was good. But Nightmare on Elm Street 3 and 4 were like awesome, right? Those are the ones you remember. 3 and 4. I mean, 2 was the aftermath of 1, right? So Nightmare on Elm Street 3 was like the best. So just saying. So um, how's we get to... Um, and get back to Ruth Bader Ginsburg because we're going to take a, a trip uh, down uh, history lane. <laughs> I want to say that. Uh, but before we do, I um, want to talk about what Barr did in regards to the anarchist designation. This is a very big deal that people are not understanding. And the reason I say this is because we're going to kind of go back into time and revisit something like this that has happened in the past that we don't really remember. And most of us, including myself, weren't alive for it. So uh, let's uh, take a listen to this. This is quite interesting because Portland mayor, Seattle, Seattle, by the way, is now paying $150,000 to an actual pimp, pimp, like an actual pimp to speak on behalf of the people of Seattle, Chaz. I mean, whatever happened to the guy that they paid before? Hmm. I think he had something to do with um, child, something with kitty diddling, if I'm not mistaken. And New York, anyway, they all came out and gave statements. And like I, I've said, I mean, I, I want to say, say, right? I'm just, you live in Portland, you live in Seattle and you have a job in a house. Then you water your plants and you have children. Like, where are you? Why are you letting this happen? For those of you that are not paid or, or done in, you know, in regards to having your own thought, why are you letting them do this? Do you feel that no one's going to come and save you? Right. No one's going to come and save you. You need to be able to save yourself. I mean, people always save each other. But how am I going to save you if you're underwater and you're not sticking your hand out like, hey, can I get some help? That's what I mean. You got to stick your hand out for some help. And the way you stick it out is by going down to your mayor and saying you're fired. Why do people think, oh, there's a process for that. You have to like, yeah, the signatures, you have to do that. No, you know what you need to do? All of you need to get together and say, how many of us are there? 10,000. Let's all show up to city council and get the sheriff's department to arrest them, citizen arrest and remove them. And we take over. That's it. That's all peaceful and nice. You go to your sheriff who has an oath and you're going to say, I don't care what the procedures are. We make the procedures. No, we don't have to be civil because these clowns are not civil. They're torching our place down. They're making laws that make no sense. They're flying huge LBDQ flags and they're comparing it with POWs. These people are insane. They won't let our kids go to school. They want us to wear masks. They're selling our medical data to China. Well, the who, China, who, uh, you know, I don't want to be on their system. I, I no, they're, they're committing crimes against the people, get them out. And you know what? If the sheriff doesn't do it, that's when you call the feds and say, we're all going down there, come and get them out or we're going to remove them. And it's not going to be pretty. That's how you take control because you are many. They are few. I mean, how is the Portland, how is mayor Wheeler still there? Like uh, if I was in Portland, man, I'd be at his house 
telling him, I'd like you to get out. I'd be filing lawsuits every single minute, if I can, copies, again, filing on behalf of this citizen, filing on behalf of that citizen, this one, this one, this one. The the, the court would have so much documentation. I would be filing a lawsuit requesting that the the courts intervene and impeach him every single day on behalf of all the citizens that would let me use their name. And I'd be like, on their behalf, I'm filing. On their behalf, I'm filing. I'm there just constantly. You got to be active. No one's going to save you if you don't reach out your hand. It's like if you're drowning and you don't stick your hand out, how someone could catch you. That's it. You got to think about that. So, uh, Elise, I got a uh, congressman. I should uh, check in with you on this, too, because the president of the United States has been told by Joe Biden, this is the Trump years. Don't blame me for the anarchy in these cities. But most of them are demanding things uh, from their Democratic mayors who are allowing them to go uh, off the reservation and uh, wreck these uh, urban environments, as well as the governor. So the president put in uh, uh, federal agents and that was ridiculed and targeted in Portland. So now he's doing something else. The attorney general through the Justice Department's doing this. He said, quote, we cannot allow federal dollars to be wasted when the safety of the citizenry hangs in the balance. It is my hope that the cities identified by the Department of Justice today will reverse course and become serious about performing the basic function of government and start protecting their own citizens. What happened is he named Seattle, Portland and New York, said you're not in your state. You're not protecting the people. I'm not going to give you federal dollars until you start doing it. Has he overstepped his bounds? No, we have seen lawlessness in New York City and cities across the country. And the fact of the matter is New York City has threatened and is slashing their support and funding for law enforcement. They are trying to defund the police. We've seen an extraordinarily sad skyrocketing of crime, of shooting, of rioting and looting. Uh, The president has every right and the Department of Justice should make sure that our cities are investing in our law enforcement to have safe and secure communities. Just look at the facts, the fact that Mayor de Blasio Uh, has verbally attacked law enforcement, has allowed this to happen. The Department of Justice should make investments in cities that are holding up their end of the bargain, which means investing in law enforcement so that we have the rule of law. Well, the attorney general certainly has gotten their attention with the anarchist jurisdictions. Elise Stefanik, we thank you very much for joining. So the attorney general said, Uh, we are not getting any money, period. And that's the way it should be. That is the way it should be. So I want to go down a trip. Okay. So do you, okay. So back in, um, in the fall of 1957, Eisenhower sent federal troops down to, um, Little Rock, Arkansas. So, um, Governor Fabus ordered Arkansas's National Guard to prevent African-American students from enrolling at Central High School. Central High was an all-white school. That's basically what happened. So the National Guard, which is under the control of every single governor, not the president, the governor, ordered troops to stand, armed troops with shooting orders to stand in front of the high school to disallow people that were not white to register at a school. Even though in 1954, the Supreme Court made the decision that segregation in public school is illegal, the governor of Arkansas defied that decision because he can. He's a governor, right? He also defied 
uh, uh, another ruling that happened in 1955, same thing. And that decision in 1955 by the Supreme Court was ordering public schools to be desegregated with all with like as soon as with warp speed. Okay. Now, what happened was President Eisenhower was in a pickle. He wanted the Constitution to be upheld, but he also did not want blood on his hands in Arkansas. So, you know, what did he do? So basically, Eisenhower was kind of chilling. I think he was in Rhode Island and he met with the governor. They sat down to have a, a, a couple drinks and talk about Little Rock. Eisenhower had thought that during their little meeting that he agreed to enroll uh, non-white students. So he Eisenhower said, your National Guard could stay at the high school and enforce that order to allow them, right? But when the governor went back to Little Rock, he withdrew the National Guard. And a couple days later, nine non-white students went into the school to enroll and a, and a riot came to like, it was a full blown riot. Like we're talking Portland scale to federal building riot. And it went out of control. But here's the thing. The governor said, all right, president, you want me to pull them out? No, I won't have the national guard to protect the black students. I'm going to pull them out. It's all right. That's all cool beans. Let them go. So they did. Nine of them went riot. Guess what the governor did? Absolutely nothing. He let the riots happen. Now, the mayor of Little Rock, right? Not the governor of Arkansas, but the mayor of Little Rock, you know, reached out to the president. He's like, yo, so the governor's not letting me do anything. I can't do anything. Um, I need, I need help. He reached out to the president saying he needed help. So what Eisenhower did is he took command of the Arkansas National Guard and he put it under federal control, meaning you don't answer to the governor now, you answer to me. And he also sent like thousands of army paratroopers from the 101st Airborne Division, almost like the first Marine Mountain that's going to be coming soon. Anyway, and um, to assist them in bringing order. That was drastic, right? It was crazy. But after the troops and the feds got in there, no more violent disturbances. The law was upheld. And Eisenhower was being criticized because he hadn't done enough to help non-white Americans. But others were saying he had done too much asserting, you know, federal power over states. Do you see how similar it is right now today, you guys? Do you see how parallel this is? The president wants to help the citizens of Portland, of Seattle, of New York City. But he can't because then mob rule will say that he's using his dictatorish federal powers to do this. So what better way than... Um, let me find it. Ooh, gosh darn it. I had it out here, didn't I? Don't say I don't have it. I just had it out here. Is this it? I think this one is it. Let me see. I have a video 
a montage about his decision to dispatch federal troops to Little Rock, Arkansas. This is what you need to see. History is a reflection of your future. Just have to see it. And that way, maybe you can understand where the president is at and how he's responding. Okay? To make this talk, I have come to the president's office in the White House. I could have spoken from Rhode Island, or where I have been staying recently. But I felt that in speaking from the house of Lincoln, of Jackson, and of Wilson, my words would better convey both the sadness I feel and the action I was compelled today to make, and the firmness with which I intend to pursue this course until the orders of the federal court at Little Rock can be executed without unlawful interference. In that city, under the leadership of demagogic extremists, disorderly mobs have deliberately prevented the carrying out of proper orders from a federal court. Local authorities have not eliminated that violent opposition. And under the law, I yesterday issued a proclamation calling upon the mob to disperse. This morning, the mob again gathered in front of the Central High School of Little Rock, obviously for the purpose of again preventing the carrying out of the court's order relating to the admission of Negro children to that school. Whenever normal agencies prove inadequate to the task, and it becomes necessary for the executive branch of the federal government to use its powers and authority to uphold federal courts, the president's responsibility is inescapable. In accordance with that responsibility, I have today issued an executive order. ...are unconstitutional. Our personal opinions about the decision have no bearing on the matter of enforcement. The responsibility and authority of the Supreme Court to interpret the Constitution are very clear. Local federal courts were instructed by the Supreme Court to issue such orders and decrees as might be necessary to achieve admission to public schools without regard to race and with all deliberate speed. During the past several years, many communities in our southern states have instituted public school plans for gradual progress in the enrollment and attendance of school children of all races in order to bring themselves into compliance with the law of the land. Thus, they demonstrated to the world that we are a nation in which law not men, are supreme. I regret to say that this truth, the cornerstone of our liberties, was not observed in this instance. It was my hope that this localized situation would be brought under control by city and to bring it into disrepute. Kind of sounds like exactly what's going on here. The president has said, you need to bring this under control. You need to protect these citizens. You need to do your job. The federal taxpayers, that means the rest of America, isn't going to give you a dime, a penny. You're not even in a picture. I'm not even going to paint a picture of a federal penny for you. 
until you do your job because you should have done your job on a local level. Same thing Eisenhower saying should have been dealt with. But instead, the governor sat there and said, let it burn. The orders of the court have thus been frustrated. The very basis of our individual rights and freedoms rests upon the certainty that the president and the executive branch of government will support and ensure the carrying out of the decisions of the federal courts, even when necessary, with all the means at the president's command. Unless the president did so, anarchy would result. There would be no security for any except that which each one of us could provide for himself. The interest of the nation in the proper fulfillment of the law's requirements cannot yield to opposition and demonstrations by some few persons. Mob rule can not be allowed to override the decisions of our courts. Now let me make it very clear that federal troops are not being used to relieve local and state authorities of their primary duty to preserve the peace and order of the community. Nor are the troops there for the purpose of taking over the responsibility of the school board and other responsible local officials in running Central High School. The running of our school system and the maintenance of peace and order in each of our states are strictly local affairs and the federal government does not interfere except in very special cases and when requested by one of the several states. In the present case, the troops are there pursuant to law solely for the purpose of preventing interference with the orders of the court. The proper use of the powers of the executive branch to enforce the orders of a federal court is limited to extraordinary and compelling circumstances. Manifestly, such an extreme situation has been created in Little Rock. This challenge must be met, and with such measures as will preserve to the people as a whole their lawfully protected rights in a climate permitting their free and fair exercise. The overwhelming majority of our people in every section of the country are united in their respect for observance of the law, even in those cases where they may disagree with that law. They deplore the call of extremists to violence. The decision of the Supreme Court concerning school integration of with mob rule. They, like the rest of our nation, have proved in two great wars their readiness to sacrifice for America. And the foundation of the American way of life is our national respect for law. And if we think, what laws have, what is it that they're really uh, you know, violating right now in Portland, New York City, and Seattle. Let's revisit our preamble. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. What they're doing is unconstitutional. They are promoting 
violence. They are promoting chaos. It's not domestic tranquility. As sure as hell is not liberty. So we, the people, must remember the preamble to understand exactly what wrongs they are doing. Just simply on that. We don't even have to look at the laws. Domestic tranquility means that you do not allow domestic terrorism to fester. Gang stalking, burning things, telling you that they will kill you if you step outside. When you sit outside to have a drink, people walking right by you, picking up a glass of water or whatever you're drinking and drinking it because they can. Taking down statues, burning down monuments. This is not what America is about. This is not about freedom of speech. (laughs) That's not freedom of speech. That's terrorism. And they are doing anything but ensuring domestic tranquility. In the South as elsewhere, citizens are keenly aware of the tremendous disservice that has been done to the people of Arkansas in the eyes of the nation. And that has been done to the nation in the eyes of the world. At a time when we face grave situations abroad because of the hatred that communism bears toward a system of government based on human rights, it would be difficult to exaggerate the harm that is being done to the prestige and influence and indeed to the safety of our nation and the world. Our enemies are gloating over this incident and using it everywhere to misrepresent our whole nation. We are portrayed as a violator of those standards of conduct which the peoples of the world united to proclaim in the Charter of the United Nations. There they affirm faith in fundamental human rights and in the dignity and worth of the human person. And they did so without distinction as to race, sex, language, or religion. And so, with deep confidence, I call upon the citizens of the state of Arkansas to assist in bringing to an immediate end all interference with the law and its processes. If resistance to the federal court order ceases at once, the further presence of federal troops will be unnecessary, and the city of Little Rock will return to its Norman normal habits of peace and order, and a blot upon the fair name and high honor of our nation in the world will be removed. Thus will be restored the image of America and of all its parts as one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Good night, and thank you very much. That's what's up. So can you see that this has happened before? Can you see how this has happened many times before? History is repeating itself because that is its nature. Why? Because we keep having the same things are being done over and over again. And for some reason, people think that, you know, things are going to change and they don't. They won't change unless you change. And this is why peeking forward to see the outcome allows us to change the future, not the past. So the White House is live right now. Let's, uh, you know, that was a weapon actually of destruction, just so you know. Here we go. Hello, everyone. 
Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have officially shown their blatant disregard for the United States Constitution. Apparently, it is now a high crime and misdemeanor worthy of impeachment for a lawfully elected president of the United States to exercise his constitutional duty. Article two, section two of the, Constitu of the Constitution clearly states that the president, quote, shall nominate, end quote, justices of the Supreme Court when a vacancy occurs. No matter the time, no matter the politics of the day, the president is the president. There's nothing in the Constitution that says the president stops being the president in an election year. The president has already appointed two strong conservative justices to the Supreme Court, justices who will interpret the Constitution as written. Now he will nominate a third. As Senator Ted Cruz reminds us, we're one vote away from seeing our religious liberty votes stripped away from our free speech stripped away, from our second amendment being stripped away, just one vote. Contrast the president's solemn constitutional duty with Democrats search and destroy politics. Nancy Pelosi has vowed to attack the president with quote arrows. Speaker Pelosi will not rule out impeaching this president for doing his job for, fulfill for fulfilling his constitutional obligation. AOC said that impeachment is an option quote on the table while Chuck Schumer stood by nodding approvingly. The plan of House Democrats is so rabidly radical that even Democrat Senator Tim Kaine has rebuked the idea, calling the idea of using impeachment to delay a Supreme Court vote, quote, foolish. Some Democrats already have a backup plan if they don't get their way on this nomination. Congressman Joe Kennedy said if he holds a vote in 2020, we pack the court in 2021. It's that simple. Senator Ed Marquis went further. No Supreme Court vacancies filled in election year, he said. If he violates it when Democrats control the Senate in the next Congress, we must abolish the filibuster and expand the Supreme Court. Senator, the president is elected to a four year term. You cannot unilaterally reduce it to three years. The president is the president. Democrats cannot win their argument on the merits. They cannot win on precedent, so they must search and destroy. Don Lemon said the quiet, the quiet part out loud last night. He said this, we're going to have to blow up the entire system if the president does his job as outlined in the Constitution. That's the difference between Republicans and Democrats. We fight to protect the system. We fight to protect the Constitution. When Democrats say outright, we are going to blow up the entire system because we do not get our way. This president will proceed undaunted by Democrat threats. President Trump will fulfill his duty. President Trump will appoint the next Supreme Court justice. President Trump will protect religious liberty. President Trump will protect our freedom of speech. President Trump will protect our second amendment. Under this president, our rights will be upheld, our constitution safeguarded, and this president will fill that seat. And with that, I'll take questions. Jim. Uh, Kelly, as you know, uh, the country has hit 200,000 deaths from the coronavirus. What do you say to Americans who are outraged over this and blame this administration for so many lives lost in this country? Well, as you've heard several doctors in the task, for, task force note from this podium, uh, we were looking at the prospect of 2 million people 
potentially perishing from the coronavirus in this country. Uh, we grieve when an, even one life is lost, but the fact uh, that we have no, the fact that that we have come nowhere near that number is a testament to this president, president taking immediate action uh, to shutting down travel from China. Uh, when the other party, Democrats were saying that was xenophobic uh, for shutting down travel for Europe, for developing uh, landmark therapeutics that are working like remdesivir. Um, and when you look at the fact that excess mortality, Europe has experienced a 28% higher excess mortality rate than the United States. It's a testament to the hard work done by the task force and this president. And if you don't mind, if I could follow up. Last night, the president said at one of his rallies about the virus, I think he was talking about younger Americans. He said it affects virtually nobody. Uh, by the way, open your schools, everybody open your schools. Uh, but he said to Bob Woodward, it's not just old, it's not just older people, it's young people too. At 200,000 deaths, shouldn't the president be telling people the truth about this virus at his rallies? The president is telling people the truth. And you're right, Jim, that he no, was talking he's, about. He's saying that it affects virtually nobody and that it doesn't affect young people. He's not telling the truth. Jim, but you're, again, taking the president out of context. I have his full quote here. And you're right that he was referring to young people. He said this. Well, um, I'm not taking it out of context. If I said he was talking about younger people, then I'm not taking it out of context. You're, you are taking it out of context because you're making an assertion that he's not giving critical information when, in fact, he is. And I will underscore exactly what he said. And he said this, you know, in some states thousands of people, um, and they've had nobody young below the age of 18, like nobody. They have a strong immune system. That is factually true. You can go to the American Academy of Pediatrics website, uh, the Children's Hospital Association, and they list yeah, out a number of states that have had zero pediatric deaths. And as we've known this since the very beginning, and for the president of the United States of 200,000 deaths to go out to his rallies and say something like it, 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 it virtually affects nobody and that in some states it's not affecting young people, that is glossing over the fact and, and really diminishing the fact that young people can catch this virus and spread it to older people. You, Younger people can also be sickened and killed by this virus. Jim, do you have the quote there with you? I have the, I have the quote here. Yes, it is exactly as I just read it to you that in several states, uh, they have had zero pediatric deaths. I've had the entire list here, Arkansas, Delaware, District of Columbia, Iowa, I, Hi, uh, Hawaii, Idaho, Kansas, and the list goes on. And as you may not know, Jim, uh, this the COVID has a 0.01% mortality rate uh, for people uh, under the age of 18. So it does. it is not a disease that affects young people in the same way as older people, which is the exact point the president was making last night. Right. Yes. Uh, one person, Kelly, who does believe that the president has the constitutional authority to make a nomination for the Supreme Court and that the Senate has the constitutional obligation to provide advice and consent is Utah Senator Mitt Romney. Uh, in the course of the last three and a half years, the president and Romney have often found themselves at odd. odd have said unkind, if not intemperate things about each other? How is the president feeling about Mitt Romney today? I haven't spoken to him about uh, Senator Romney, but Senator Romney is recognizing um, what any of us who take a clear-eyed look at, pre of, at precedent recognize, that the precedent is on our side here. Uh, 29 times has there been an appointment during an election year, 29 times. And when you break down those numbers, 19... I have that precedent for you so you can see it. Times when those... After the after this.
nominations were made. The Senate and the president were of the same party. 17 of those 19 times, uh, that nominee went on to be confirmed. Uh, the 10 times when it was a difference in party between Republicans and Democrats in the Senate and the presidency, only two went on to be confirmed. So precedent is on our side, uh, but Democrats are trying to have it both ways here. And I would cite Dan McLaughlin at National Review who said this, and he's exactly right, choosing not to fill a vacancy would be a historically unprecedented act of unilateral disarmament. Sir, let me just follow up on that if I could. So timing now is the next issue. The president will have 37 or 38 days from the time he makes the announcement to the last time that he could have it vote before the election. Past years, John Paul Stevens was nominated and confirmed in 19 days. Chief Justice John Roberts, 24. Uh, Justice uh, Sandra Day O'Connor in 33. Times were different back then than they are now. Can you do it in 37 days? We certainly believe we can. Um, you've heard uh, very optimistic words from Senator Graham. Um, and how will you do it? Well, we will go about this um, the way we always have by putting forward a constitution abiding textualist originalist that we believe the American people will appreciate and we believe will uh, get through the approval process, the nomination and confirmation process, I should say, uh, quite quickly. Yes, Kevin. Two quick questions. Um, on the 200,000 deaths, will the, will the president recognize that publicly in a day um, at his speech or on Twitter? I mean, is this something that he, uh, would like to express uh, remorse over or simply to people who have lost. The president throughout this pandemic has done just that. Um, he has said before that it keeps him up at night thinking of even one life lost. Uh, this president has taken this incredibly seriously. Um, and what he's done is he's worked harder um, each and every day. He works hard, puts his head down. I think that's very evident in the administration's historic response, the largest mobilization of the private sector since World War II, the fact that we got working therapeutics delivered to the American people, the fact that a vaccine, frankly, this will be the fastest pace for a vaccine for a novel pathogen in history uh, as we seek to reach that goal by the end of the year. Uh, that's what the president does. He takes this seriously. I um, mean, the fact that you've seen the fatality rate that has fallen 85% since April, and the fact that only 1.5% of emergency room visits are now uh, people sick with COVID is a real testament to the hard work done by the task force and President Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, could you speak a bit about why the president prefers to have uh, the confirmation vote before the election? How does he think this is going to help Cory Gardner and Joni Ernst and Republicans keep the majority in the Senate? Well, the president would like to uh, see a confirmation process that is fair. I think one of the low points um, for this process was the Kavanaugh hearings and what Democrats did there, making baseless allegations against Justice Kavanaugh, someone respected um, prior to President Trump appointing him uh, by everyone. And Democrats really dragged his name through the mud. What happened there was a travesty. I mean, the president wants to see a fair confirmation process. Uh, and he wants to see one uh, that does not look um, like what, what happened to Kavanaugh. That was a real low point so for Democrats. Democratic stumbles uh, in the Kavanaugh uh, confirmation process will help Republicans. Um, he thinks, look, Democrats really showed um, the, them at 
themselves at the lowest point um, in that confirmation process. I think the American people saw Democrats uh, for the partisan games that they play. And I think the American people are looking now and seeing Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer talking about impeachment for executing your power in Article 2, Section 2. It's really um, inane and outlandish, the things they're suggesting. And once again, they seem to be doubling down on their Kavanaugh approach. Didn't work out too well with Justice Kavanaugh. Won't work out too well this time in an election year. Yes. Daily one on COVID, one on the court. First on COVID, if I can. The president recently gave himself an A plus for his handling of COVID, but a D for his PR. What would good PR look like when 200,000 Americans are dead? Um, what the president um, was saying is that um, he wants to make sure that we get good information to the American people. Um, that's something that I think we've done. Um, and this the, president he's provided information at times that this, was not true. Uh, he said he was he said he was downplaying it so purposefully. He was providing information at times that was not fully. Confirmed. That's absolutely inaccurate. Um, the president never downplayed critical health information. Uh, the president never downplayed our COVID response. Uh, and you can just see that by the historic effort that we've put forward. And I would also point you to Dr. Fauci, uh, who said, I don't recall anything different in our discussions with the president, uh, that he said things quite similarly in public. And he was asked directly by none other than John Roberts, did you ever get the sense that he was or wasn't playing this down? No, no, I didn't. And that's an assertion echoed by the vice president. Our response, uh, when you look at 100 million tests that we've exceeded, the vaccine on record pace, the therapeutics, the fact that we've brought fatality down by 85%. This was a novel pathogen that came in for which there were no tests and there were no identified therapeutics, but they were identified very quickly. And also with regard to the vaccine, when you look at the notion that we are manufacturing this at commercial levels, uh, which I was told by uh, by Dr. Salawi that that normally takes years to do. Um, and we're already producing, um, the goal is 100 million doses by the end of the year. That's a testament to this president and his response. If none of these vaccines are effective, what is plan B for the White House? Look, you're asking a hypothetical. We have six vaccines. We have six American vaccines that we've identified, um, three of them in phase three clinical trial. There's also um, one, there's, well, we're getting there. And by the end of the year is the goal. And when you say- What would we do if they're not approved? We all hope for good news, but what if they're not approved? What would the White House have? We have six candidates. We are a strong belief uh, that we will identify one, hopefully more than one working vaccine uh, by the end of the year, producing them in advance. We already have a distribution plan. And when you compare this, I think context matters. Ebola taking 14 months to get to phase three clinical trial. We already have two candidates in phase three clinical trial. Ebola took three years to get to completion. Uh, we will have done this in under a year, the fastest rate for a novel pathogen in history. Justin. The president did retweet today a segment from Rush Limbaugh where Limbaugh suggested, quote, it would be great if Republicans skipped committee hearings on this pick altogether. Does the president want Republicans to skip committee hearings? They're a co-equal branch of government. Why is he directing them to do anything? Okay, I completely disagree with that. I was shocked when I saw that. The president um, is a fan of Rush Limbaugh, appreciates his commentary, and um, therefore retweeted it. But we're working with the Senate right now on uh, that confirmation process. And Senator Graham has said it looks like it will be on a three-day timeline. So he Justin. Wants he wants the committee to go forward. Justin. Thanks, Kelly. Um, one on the SCOTUS and then one on the stimulus. Um, can you confirm that the president's planning to meet with Judge Lagoa in uh, Florida while, while he's down there this week? And he said yesterday that he had spoken to some candidates beforehand. I know the uh, Judge Barrett was in here yesterday, but I was wondering if you could talk about any of the others that he may have already had contact with. Yeah, I won't get into his private meetings. You will find out which Constitution-abiding textualist and originalist he uh, is appointing on Saturday.
And then uh, on the stimulus, it's been kind of a rocky couple of days on Wall Street. I think there's concern that the Supreme Court fight may sort of kill the, the last gasps of, of getting a stimulus uh, bill done before the election. So the White House agree that that's probably not going to happen until after the election, if at all, or if you are still hopeful, you know, the president said when the time is right, uh, he'd be willing to reach out to Speaker Pelosi. It, it seems like we're getting down into the last legislative days before the election. It's the time now, right? Yeah, we've um, wanted to see a phase four uh, relief bill to the American people. It's why the chief of staff and Secretary Mnuchin um, have been in negotiations. Um, unfortunately, though, they've been in negotiations with a fundamentally unserious partisan named Speaker Pelosi, who, when we would exceed what she asked for with school funding, let's say, uh, she then would reject the money that was in excess of what she had previously asked for. Um, Democrats, I think, showed what they were about uh, when they filibustered a bill that would have provided $300 a week to the American people through December 27th. They filibustered that, I believe, last week. So at this point, um, the onus is really on Speaker Pelosi. Um, we encourage her to send one-off bills, perhaps airline funding uh, or other elements that we could work through the process to get to the American people. It's always been this president's priority to do that. So you don't see a... Uh, oh kind of big stimulus bill, but you might see one-off bills before election. Yeah, the onus is on Nancy Pelosi. You know, we've come up in our number um, to 1.5 trillion. So it's possible should she um, become serious in these negotiations. But uh, at this point, if she doesn't want to deliver um, relief to the American people to that degree, then she can one-off some bills uh, that we would look at and be happy to move forward with because the priority has always been getting money to the, the American people, which is why the president has had those EOs on evictions and unemployment insurance. Um, and student loans and evictions. Yes. The, the first presidential debate is a week from today. How do you expect the Supreme Court issue to impact that debate? Yeah, so, um, you know, a lot of that is for the campaign with regards uh, to the debate. So I'd have to refer you there. Um, but I think the American people are going to get a very clear eyed look, um, as they have with the previous two nominees we've made of what this president stands for, that he wants a judge who will protect our fundamental rights, our essential liberties, who looks at the Constitution as written, uh, not trying to fancifully interpret that document, who looks at the plain meaning of statutes and uh, implements that and, and rules in a way that a true textualist would. Uh, this is a president who will protect the Second Amendment, who will protect the First Amendment. And these fundamental rights are at stake uh, should, a, another, should another party um, have their way. Uh, with the judiciary, but this president um, will continue to appoint justices in the mold um, of Gorsuch and, and of Justice Kavanaugh. Separately, the, the Democrats are threatening to add justices to the Supreme Court, as you mentioned. Does that concern you at all as you go about this process? Yeah, that's uh, it, it's unfortunately um, a, a another example of trying to blow up the system. If you don't get your way, uh, Democrats will blow up the system. Uh, they will change the system. They will trample on the Constitution. And, you know, I would point them to the words of Justice Ginsburg, who called court packing a bad idea. She called it partisan. She said nine seems to be a good number. I think packing the court was a bad idea when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried it. And I'm not in favor of all of that. Yes. Anita. Um, uh, I had a question on the virus, but I wanted just to follow up on Justin. He um, asked about the speaker. Has the president called the speaker about the recovery bill and why not if he wants to get this done? Is he, is he calling other lawmakers as well? 
I'm not aware of um, any conversation that they've had. Uh, there have been communications through the chief of staff, through the secretary of treasury, but until um, Speaker Pelosi becomes serious in her negotiating, instead of uh, she's engaging in political drama, uh, we're really at a stalemate. So it's really the ball is in her court to um, become serious in these negotiations. It would carry more weight if the president called than, than Mark Meadows, correct? They've, they've been negotiating. And uh, when we believe this, the speaker's in a serious spot, we can um, move forward with other conversations. But at this point, um, when you ask for a certain amount of school funding, we exceed that. And then you reject the excess for school funding. I mean, it just really shows where her mindset's at. And my question on the virus was um, that some polls are showing that a majority of Americans don't trust what the president is saying on the virus uh, vaccine. And I wondered, you, keep, you all keep talking about the vaccine possibly coming out. How are you going to get people to believe that the vaccine is safe and that people should go get it when it does come out? What, are you, what is the process going to be looking like? Yeah, so I think um, first I, I want to point out that several um, of the doctors have been on the record um, and have said that this vaccine is going through the same rigorous process it should. Um, as Dr. Hannes said, I've repeatedly said that all FDA decisions have been and will continue to be based solely on good science and data. Um, as Dr. Fauci said, certainly there are no corners being cut here. Uh, and uh, several others like Secretary Azar been on the record on this. So um, the members of the task force have have all said this is going through the rigorous FDA process and it will be a good, safe and effective vaccine. Oh, yes. Just following up to Anita's question on the vaccine, how mm -hmm. soon would the president feel comfortable taking a vaccine himself? And would he support a non-American vaccine, perhaps even from China or Russia? So um, first, I would say this, that the president has been on the record saying, I'm happy to be uh, the first person to take the vaccine or the last person, whatever is best for the American people. Um, he believes it'll be a safe and effective vaccine and one he would certainly be open to taking. Um, and he said this, um, I'm going to really say something uh, that is not like me. I don't care. I just want to get a vaccine that works. I really don't care if it's another country. I'll take my hat off to them. But currently, I think the other vaccine in phase three clinical trial um, is the um, one in Oxford. Yes. Just to uh, clarify on the Mitt Romney development, with uh, Senator Romney's announcement, does the president think he actually has uh, a bulletproof uh, group of Republicans who will vote no matter what, even before the nominee is named? Or does he fear some defections after that nominee is named and the confirmation hearings begin? No, he thinks um, his nominee is going to be someone with a stellar track record, um, someone who, as I've mentioned, several of the qualities will be a textualist, um, who will be an originalist, um, and someone who we believe Republicans will, will really rally around. Um, and Senator Graham said that he believes that he'll have the votes and you know, leave it to the senators at this point. Um, but this will be a nominee that will really, I think, unify Republicans. Nose counter. Does he think he has 51? He was, I missed the first part of what you said. The president has been a pretty good nose counter. Does he think he has 51? Yeah, I think at this point he's just trying uh, to select the nominee. I haven't <clears throat> spoken to him about the vote count, um, but we believe that Republicans will remain unified and we believe that this nominee uh, will get across the finish line. Yes. Uh, the president is giving a health care speech on Thursday. Is this finally going to be his long awaited um, comprehensive health care policy? Because there are doubts that such a thing actually exists. No, it, it certainly does exist. Uh, the president um, in, in the next week or so will 
be laying out his vision for healthcare. Some of that has already um, been put out there, like telemedicine um, and lowering the cost of drugs, but the president uh, and protecting pre-existing conditions, but the president will be laying out some additional um, healthcare steps in the coming, I would say, two weeks. Yeah. Yes, Yamish. Hi, thanks so much, Bailey. Um, I have two questions. The first is the president has said Roe v. Wade would be overturned if he got a chance to change the balance on the court. He said in 2016, quote, if we put another two or perhaps three justices on, that will happen. Is that the ultimate goal here to overturn Roe v. Wade? The president um, and the administration would not ask a judge to prejudge um, a case. Um, and I would point you to um, the rule set by none other than Senator Joe Biden um, at the confirmation hearing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg when he instructed no questions on how Ginsburg will decide any specific case that would come before her. Um, and as Justice Ginsburg's, Ginsburg said in her uh, confirmation, no hints, no forecasts, no previews. Um, and Canon 5 of the Model Code of Judicial Conduct also uh, reflects that a judge should refrain from giving um, specific viewpoints on cases, controversies, or issues. Whether or not the president's quote in 2016, whether he still stands by that, that he would like to see it overturned. The president's um, philosophy as he's moving forward with this nomination process is he's looking at a judge that has certain qualities. And that is someone who looks at the Constitution and interprets it as written, interprets the plain meaning of statutes as written, and then will be a textualist and an originalist. Second question about yes. the virus. Um, again, we, we've marked the fact that 200,000 Americans have died from the coronavirus. Could you, again, try to reconcile the president telling Bob Woodward that plenty of young people, quote his words, plenty of young people are affected by the coronavirus with him saying last night in front of a crowd that virtually nobody young dies or, and, and it's affected by this virus. I'm wondering if you could just reconcile those two. Why did he tell Bob Woodward that plenty of young people are impacted by this virus, but not say that in front of a crowd? Well, as you know, this was a novel pathogen. We now know a lot more um, about COVID today. Um, and the president actually said that in a speech last night, right before on um, the comments he made, he said, we now know a lot more about the virus. And we know that elderly people, particularly those with comorbidities are affected by it. And we know that young people um, are by and large, um, and in some states, um, there's been no young people that have succumbed to this disease. Um, and I've listed off a few of the states for you. I um, mean, we know that a very, very um, small percentage of those under 18 um, have actually perished because, perished because of COVID. I mean, it was a novel pathogen. Now we know a lot more about it, who it affects, who our most vulnerable are, which is why we've surged testing to communities that are vulnerable and will continue to make sure that our elderly, those with comorbidities are protected. Yes. And not, not continuing to try to like not have panic. He told Bob Woodward that he wanted to downplay it and play it down to not cause panic. He's you don't think he's doing that still. The president has never downplayed critical health information. Um, Dr. Fauci, as I noted to you, um, said point blank. No, he uh, he didn't. And that's an assertion of Vice, Pre the Vice President Pence, who led the task force, um, made as well. Yes. Uh, thanks, Kaylee. Um, the administration has filed an appeal to the Supreme Court on apportionment. Um, trying to make sure that people in the country illegally are not counted when congressional seats are handed out. Sorry, a little muffled. Um, Texas is one of the states that would lose a seat uh, if those people are not counted. Uh, the Constitution says that the people in a state are the number that are used for apportionment. Are, those, are people in the country illegally not people? And why does the president not want Texas to have more seats rather than fewer in the U.S. House. Yeah, I haven't done a particular a deep dive into that legal case. Um, I can look into it and get back to you. Yes. Can I ask you a separate question? Sure. Uh, at the top of this, um, you mentioned that Democrats have talked about impeachment. 
And you also said that a president doesn't stop being president in the last year. Is there any, not, not that they're actually going through the impeachment at the moment, but is there anything to prevent an impeachment in the final months of a presidency? Um, well, first, I mean, to pursue impeachment um, based on someone executing the, their lawful duty, their constitutional duty is just preposterous. And it, it told us a whole lot about uh, what Democrats use impeachment for. It shows that uh, they've always viewed impeachment, at least in the Nancy Pelosi era, as a partisan tool to take down a sitting president, to disempower the American people uh, who voted to empower President Trump. They've used impeachment as a political tool. Um, and that is that will be the the history and the record of Nancy Pelosi. And now she's on the record saying that she would even use impeachment uh, to try to undo the Constitution, particularly Article 2, Section 2. Uh, that is shameful but unsurprising from the speaker. Yes. In his UN speech, President Trump uh, mentioned the reduction of carbon emission in the U.S. Of what? Sorry. Carbon emission in the U.S. Okay, I can't really hear you. Carbon, carbon, oh, carbon, carbon emission. emission. Okay. Saying it was a good thing. Uh, because it's connected with the reduction of use of coal, is it to say that decline of coal is a good thing? Um, I would just note that on greenhouse gas emissions, uh, we have decreased them as the U.S. has become number one in the oil, in the oil and natural gas production, but we've simultaneously uh, reduced greenhouse emissions. Yes. I also wanted to follow up on the uh, speech the president prepared for the UN General Assembly, he hit China really hard. And the Chinese ambassador and introducing President Xi responded, accusing the president of bullying, protectionism, and unilateralism. I'm wondering what the White House response is to that. And then how concerned is this White House that this growing rift between the world's two largest economies is going to hurt the efforts to combat coronavirus? Um, let me just say nothing. It's hurt the efforts to combat the coronavirus more than more than China uh, concealing information about COVID-19 from the very beginning. Uh, what China did was inexcusable um, in partnership with the WHO, hid critical information about transmission of COVID from us, about the severity of COVID, not just from us, but from the world. Uh, there's no bigger bully uh, than, than China when it comes to COVID. Um, and that's pretty clear. And just look at what happened at the WHO. Yes. One quick follow up uh, with regard to the intelligence around the poisoning of the Russian opposition leader. The president said we'll talk about that another time. I'm just trying to get a sense of has the president reviewed the German assessment? Is he rejecting that assessment that he was indeed poisoned? The, no, the United States, um, as president of the G7 um, and joined by our G7 partners, has condemned in the strongest possible terms the confirmed poisoning. Um, and Germany briefed the G7 on clinical and toxicological uh, findings by medical experts in a specialized germ German um, armed forces laboratory determined that Mr. Navalny was the victim of an attack with a chemical nerve agent, um, a, a substance developed by Russia and any use of chemical weapons anywhere, anytime, by anyone, under any circumstance, is unacceptable. So, so Chanel. What would the U.S. response be then? I, I, again, I've told you so far that the United States um, has condemned it, along with G7, and rest assured, um, there's been no one tougher on Russia uh, than this country. You've seen what we've done with sanctions um, and expelling diplomats, among other actions. Yes, Chanel. Stanley, expanding on the last couple of questions about the U.N. speech, President does hit China pretty hard, specifically on China's slave labor practices and ethnic cleansing. But then, interestingly, he dives into their environmental record, 
China dumps millions and millions of tons of plastic and trash into the oceans, overfishes other countries' waters, destroys vast swaths of coral reefs, and emits more toxic mercury into the atmosphere than any country anywhere in the world. How responsive have the United States' allies been to this message from the president and on confronting China on these fronts in particular? I would say the the world is unified um, in condemning some of the human rights uh, violations um, by uh, China. Um, And also, I would note just on the issue of CO2 emissions, um, there's no bigger emitter than China itself. Charlotte? Thank you, Kaylee. A Heritage Foundation report has discovered a financial link between an organization linked to Black Lives Matter and a pro-Chinese regime group. Is that something that the White House uh, would investigate and is that something you're concerned about? So I haven't seen uh, that particular reporting, um, but just on the note of some of the violence that we've been seeing, um, I would just point out this New York Times article that came out um, Terrence Moses um, was watching protesters against police brutality march down um, his quiet residential street one recent evening when some in the group of a few hundred suddenly stopped and started yelling. Um, Mr. Moses was initially not sure what the protesters were upset about, but as he got closer, he saw it. It was his neighbor who had an American flag on display. It went from a peaceful march calling out the names to all of a sudden, bang, how dare you fly the American flag, said Mr. Moses, um, who is black and runs a nonprofit group in the Portland, Oregon area. They said, take it down. They wouldn't leave. They said they're going to come back and burn down the house. Mr. Moses and others blocked the demonstrators and told them to leave. Uh, Mr. Moses said, we don't go around terrorizing folks to try and force them to do something they don't want to do, uh, who runs a nonprofit group that provides support for local homelessness people. He said, I'm a veteran, I'm for these liberties. I mean, it's shameful the violence we've seen in our cities that is now a spilling into suburbs across the country um, and good work and good reporting um, by the New York Times on that. Um, now I'd like to invite Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg to the podium uh, to discuss a disgruntled former detailee. Uh, general Kellogg is a three-star general, a veteran of the Vietnam War and Operation Desert Storm. General Kellogg has been supporting President Trump from the beginning and has been by the president's side for major foreign policy decisions. Uh, General Kellogg, please. Thanks, Kaylee. Good afternoon. I'm Keith Kellogg. Olivia Troy worked for me. I fired her. The reason I fired her was her performance has started to drop after six months working on the task force as a backbencher. She was responsible for coordinating meetings, bringing people together, And when the performance level dropped off, I went to the vice president of the United States and recommended she leave. I'm the one that escorted her off the compound. What she has said, I have never heard. That's never happened. And I've been through every single meeting of the task force, been with the president and the vice president through every meeting. What bothers me about what Olivia said is by insinuation, the disparagement of the task force, the vice president, and the president of the United States. When you look at what the task force has done, we are now facing the worst pandemic we have seen in over 100 years, and we're fighting through it. We are this close to a vaccine that will work. We are finally fighting through it. We're developing some opportunities to make sure the American people are protected as we go forward. 
when we've had the doctors that are out there, when the comments she has made, when you looked at the Dr. Fauci's, Dr. Burks, and Redfield, Stephen Hahn, Dr. Gerard, all of these doctors who work exceptionally hard for the American people. The president has made some critical decisions all the way along the line, tough decisions. He made a decision on the China travel ban when we had less than a dozen known cases here in the United States. He was the one who set up the air bridge working with commercial companies. So we would develop and bring in PPE in 27 hours instead of 27 days. He's the one who went to companies like 3M so we could more rapidly manufacture the N95 mask going forward. He's the one who drove all of those efforts. And I heard the comments made about the people we have lost. Do not think for a minute that that has not bothered us. It does. Because we know on the task force, several of those people, scores of those people, died without relatives because they couldn't get in because of COVID. We know that. Scores of them died on ventilators when they're in their sedation, sedation because they didn't have an opportunity to see their loved ones. That bothers us every single day. Don't think it doesn't. And it bothers the president. And the president's been very confident that we're going to get a solution. You want a president. You want a leader that displays confidence that we have something going forward that we're going to win and beat this virus. And that's what he's done all the way along the line. I'm very proud of the president of the United States. I'm very proud of the vice president of the United States. I'm very proud of the task force and the work it's done. I am not proud, Olivia Troy. So General, General Kellogg, should the president be having these big rallies? Thank you, Lieutenant General. Um, we appreciate you doing this. That um, what we have here um, with this former disgruntled detailee um, and with Miles Taylor as well, these are not profiles in courage, but these are profiles in cowardice. Less than two months ago, uh, now disgruntled former detailee Olivia Troy proudly declared that she was serving in the Trump administration. And it had been, quote, the honor of her life. Troy said, quote, I have witnessed firsthand how dedicated and committed all of you have been doing the right thing. She wrote that uh, just about a month and a half ago. Uh, Troy failed to speak up uh, and she struggled to keep up because she was constantly complaining about how exhausted and overwhelmed she was coordinating conference calls and scheduling meetings. Uh, Troy's detail was cut short and now she's cutting commercials for a fringe club of quote, never Trumpers who are desperate for relevancy. And the price of admission to this club is fabricated smears and flat out lies against President Trump. Troy joins the similarly irrelevant Miles Taylor, CNN's latest contributor. Taylor proudly posed for a photo with the president smiling ear to ear. Taylor wrote that, quote, it was the honor of his lifetime to serve as DHS chief of staff. Uh, but Miles couldn't go the distance. Those who knew Miles during his short time in the administration knew he could not get results. After he left DHS, actually got the results uh, in securing the border, building the border wall, and more. Uh, desperate to please his new Silicon Valley friends, Miles made up lies against President Trump to fit in. He can now rest easy at Google, having earned his anti-Trump credentials and the approval of his big tech peers. Uh, neither of these individuals knew the president, but they are certainly uh, try to profit, trying to profit off of, their off of their time here in the White House. Uh, flat out lies, and thank you, General Kellogg, for setting the record straight.
Thank you. Can we have some follow-up questions, Kaylee, as long as we have someone well then so we have a lot to unpack there quickly uh so first of all i'll tell you about olivia troy i actually ran into olivia troy um during the obama administration she actually served in his intelligence committee just so you know so i know miss troy quite well i this is how i knew not to trust pence <laughs> She worked um, uh, uh, with the RNC. Um, she worked uh, under Bush. And um, she was um, part of DHS, I would say, working with the HIG that I was a part of um, under Barack Hussein Obama. So um, it seems that... <laughs> It uh, looks pretty, it's pretty interesting that, um, you know, this all came out. It's, it's, it's actually very interesting. So um, I, I won't say much. I'll, I'll, I, I am writing a piece on her and General Kellogg. Remember, when the president appointed the coronavirus task force, what did I tell you he was doing? He said, wait, 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 don't ask me about, um, you know, about all this, you know, uh, coronavirus stuff. No, 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 no. Wait, 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 stop, stop. Here's the team. These are your specialists. These are the people that you're going to ask for. That includes the aides. Now, ugh, I can't say that. So let's just leave it at that. Let's just leave it at that for now. The president is on it. He's uh, on top of it, making it happen. And they don't like it. Let's just put it that way in respects to COVID. The infodemic. Now, something that Kaylee said, which was something that we were going to be discussing today, is the fact that uh, they want to pack the Supreme Court. That actually happened a while back. And it's important for us to visit that. There was um, a clip that I want to play for you that trader Ronna McDaniel tweeted. I'm going to play it for you quickly. Here we go. Well, what does concern you? If you're not worried about the term limits, what are you worried about? Well, what was the other? You mentioned adding the number, changing the number of justices. Oh, yes, yes. There is no fixed number in the Constitution. So this court has had as few as five, as many as 10. Nine seems to be a good number, and it's been that way for, for a long time. I have heard that there are some people on the Democratic side who would like to increase the number of judges. I think that was a bad idea when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried to pack the court. His plan was for every justice who stays on the court past the age of 70, the president would have authority to nominate another justice. If that plan had been effective, the court's number would have swelled immediately from 9 to 15. And the president would have six appointments to make. 
you mentioned before um, the court appearing partisan. Well, if anything would make the court appear partisan, it would be that one side saying, when we're in power, we're going to enlarge the number of judges so we will have more people who will vote the way we want them to. Um, so I am not at all in favor of that solution to what I see as um, a temporary situation so basically what she was saying was that um they want to pack the courts with a bunch of justices there could have been up to 15 or 11 this is what the democrats want to do there is no fixed number nine is a sweet spot she said and here's the issue that there is precedent we heard it at the beginning of the show where you know there's precedent of electing someone but not on an it happened on an outgoing term of a two term which means you're not being reelected but on a term where you're up for re-election you have you can even if you're on your way out you can still pick it the question is you know why is it that now uh they've uh they've changed the rules of how it's allowed to go and how it can happen they want to impeach the president because he wants to do what ensure that we have a justice department per se uh, to um, ensure that when they contest the elections, because they're busy on impeachment. So they're busy on impeaching Barr. We already covered that. Told you that was going to happen if he wasn't going to bow out. Right. So they want to get rid of him. Uh, even though he's slow walking, the president's just waiting. Just all of us are just waiting. You know, there's always a switch. And then we have the impeachment that I told you they were going to go after the president. They're going to be doing that while they're counting ballots. Because Wisconsin just came out saying, oh, we can count ballots till six days after the election. And other ones are like, as long as it takes and months and months. And huh, guess we're changing our whole government. You're going to see. You know, elections used to begin in January and actually be executed in March at, uh, during the Lincoln times. I'm, I'm just saying. So uh, this is going to be very interesting on how uh, things are panning out. I want us to take a look at, um, there's a video from 2013 that I want to play for you. It's about the Supreme Court justices. I, I just want you guys to see this before we get to Lindsey Graham's comment. And again, I just wanted to say, I did not agree at all with Rush Limbaugh's, uh, you know, statement because there should always be process and procedure, no matter what it is. And there should be a vote. They have to sit there. They can't just ex they can't, ex put, you know, put it through. It's not, it's not that it's not legit, but it has to be done the right way. Uh, filibustering can't happen because we need it done for the elections. Uh, it's necessary that we have that tie-breaking vote. Um, so, you know, since they killed her again right now, pulled the plug because it was dragging. And like I said, Supreme Court Justice Roberts is going to be going through some things. Let's take a look at this. 
courtroom today only because there were no Supreme Court arguments or decisions. But she is with us because in her spare time from covering the court on a daily basis for the National Law Journal and, of course, regularly with us, she's written a book that takes a larger look at the justices and key cases since 2005, the year that John Roberts became chief justice. It's called The Roberts Court, The Struggle for the Constitution. And Marsha, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. First, what were you trying to do here that you don't do normally with us and for the and in your daily job? I saw the book as an opportunity to really uh, explore the court in depth. Uh, I think I and many journalists today feel that uh, we have fewer opportunities to write in depth about just about any subject mm -hmm. because of the Internet. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're writing for our newspapers, we're writing for the web, we're writing for blogs. And uh, a book was an opportunity to really do that and also to just add to what I do on the news mm -hmm. hour, and that's try to shed some light, uh, more light on what the court does. Well, when you look at the big picture, the big issue of the last years, and we've one we've talked about and one you focus on here is the 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 conservative shift in the makeup of the court and how that affects many of the decisions here. Right? That's right. And uh, the court has had a conservative majority for some time. But the Roberts court in particular, we, we saw the court become a little more conservative than its prede predecessor court, mainly because of the addition of Justice Samuel Alito, who replaced Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. She often was more of a moderating force on the court, and he is much more conservative. And one of the things you're looking at, and again, this comes up in the, the, the sort of politicization of the court. We talk about it is a, a more, and it's because of the times we live in, right, where everything is politicized. That's true. How did the justices see that, and how does that play into their work, if at all? I did interview a good number of the justices, and, and in the book, they, they some of them do talk about whether politics enters into their decision making. And obviously, they all feel that it does not. Mm -hmm. uh, but they talk about how they approach cases. Uh, one, they don't think in terms of a liberal block and a conservative block. As one justice explained to me, we all do the same thing. You know, we, we read the lower court opinion, mm -hmm. we read the briefs, we listen to the arguments, we look at prior decisions, and we make our decisions. But as this justice also said, the results are what the results are. We shouldn't be so naive, I think, to, to believe when you have five justices appointed by Republican presidents and four by Democratic presidents, that there is going to be uh, ideological empathy mm -hmm. with the politics of the president. And you and, and the way you've done this is to look at four area, big areas, right, where very important decisions, uh, cases, I mean, were, were decided by five to four. Uh, that, that's six, right, yeah. Jeff. Um, you know, it, it's a story of the Roberts court in general, but more specifically, it's the story of four great divides on the court mm -hmm. in the areas of race, guns, money in uh, campaigns and elections, mm -hmm. and health care. All the, very much with us. In, in oh, still, yeah, they right? have the, these yeah. decisions have shelf lives. We're yeah. going to see more litigation, yeah. and we're seeing it right now in the yeah. current court. Right. But also then the struggle within the court and outside of the court for the meaning of the Constitution right. in those areas. And, 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 and you get to tell the backstory which is what makes it so sort of intriguing and takes us beyond the daily news, right? Yes. I mean, uh, including how a lot of cases just get to the court. That, What's going on behind the scenes? That was really important to me because uh, when we talk about cases, we, we briefly go through the facts yeah. and then we deal with the law. But 
it's it's hard to get to the Supreme Court. Yeah. And in the book, you're going to meet people like a, a Seattle mother who sued the Seattle school district in the race cases. And you're going to meet uh, a political activist who was uh, involved in the Citizens United case. And at the same time, you're going to meet some very smart, creative, uh, conservative and libertarian lawyers who had an eye on the court, a more sympathetic court, and pushed these cases to the up to the Supreme mm -hmm. Court. Young lawyers like Alan Gura, who argued and won the Second Amendment gun case. It's the Roberts Court, right, at yes. the center, and you've and you've and you've started it with the beginning of uh, Chief Justice Roberts. How has he evolved in these years? What to, what what um, what role do you think he plays in sort of controlling the shape of and the outcome of the court now? I think he's very committed to trying to reach consensus on the court, because when the court can speak with one voice or nearly one voice, it, it sends a, a clear message to the lower courts into how they should apply and uh, interpret the law. And he's had some success with that. And one of the things I point out in the book is that even though I'm focusing on five, four decisions, mm -hmm. more than 50 percent of the court's decisions are unanimous or by seven, two or eight, one. That As, doesn't get that much attention. Oh, no, right? Because we, we don't tend to look at those cases. Right, right? Not at all. Mm -hmm. and, and by picking the five, four decisions that I do focus on, um, I pick them mainly because we learn when they divide like that the most about individual justices. Mm -hmm. And I try to show the reader that uh, even within the five block or the four block, there are differences among those justices as to how they approach and interpret the law. And, and, and personally, uh, do they seem to... Um well, I mean, we talked about this after the healthcare uh, uh, decision, for one, which you write yes. about here. Um, did that leave any strains personally among the justices? Or can you tell us in their working life how much they, they do get along? Okay. Well, I did talk to two justices after the health care ruling, mm -hmm. and uh, they were very honest that it was a very tense, tough time. In fact, uh, they compared it to the uh, Seattle-Louisville school cases that mm -hmm. I discussed that were, were, were in 2007. It was that difficult. But they also were very confident that the emotions and the passions would be eased by the following September. And I have seen no evidence of continued strain uh, among the justices. So it was very important that you guys see this. I'll share the link to the video so you can watch the remaining couple of minutes. But it's important that you see it because uh, they cons consistently say Robert's court. And remember, he's in charge of FISA. He's in charge of a lot of these things. And um, uh, what people don't seem to understand is that... Um, Five, four decisions are the ones that show that all of them are different and say different things. But what they had was a, um, a Supreme Court that was very unanimous, like she said, which should terrify all of you when you have like-minded judges. Not saying that all of them should be individual, but their basis should always be the Constitution. And that's not something that we are seeing. Now, again, we have the Senate um, confirming that we have enough votes for uh, the SCOTUS nomination that's going to be coming. I think I'm going to play that tomorrow. Uh, that way this does this show isn't too long.
and we can revisit that because it should be coming out. But what I want to kind of have you guys see is, um, hold on. I'm sending you on the chat, on all the chats, and I have to manually go into DLive because my software doesn't let me, uh, a video on um, the justices, the most controversial justice ever to serve the United States Supreme Court. And um, it's a, it's William Douglas, and it's very interesting. It is one of the most controversial things. That's something that you should watch to understand the history of our Supreme Court. Now, uh, on that note, I'm gonna start with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and how uh, she says that filling the Supreme Court justice seat is, um, hold on, listen to it. Times that we have had for everyday people to stand up not just from everyday working people, but all the way up to the House and the Senate. We all need to be more courageous and we all must, must act in unprecedented ways to make sure that, that our rights are stabilized. And to Mitch McConnell, mm. we need to tell him that he is playing with fire. One thing that is so surprising is that when you go back and look at Trump's past videos from 80s and 90s, you can see us consistently saying how America is being taken advantage of by the world. Okay, he he reluctantly entered politics. It's very obvious if you look at his past videos. So he literally sacrificed. He didn't expect this much resistance from the deep state and swamp, but he is a fighter. Continue to fight. We are behind you. The silent majority is behind you. It is. The silent majority is behind you. And no matter what they say, no matter how they promote domestic terrorist groups and promote them to join forces, see that woke man, see that woke Im immigrant, there's tons of them, tons of them. And so AOC, Schumer and Pelosi are leading the way. I cannot believe that Schumer is actually leading the pack on these attacks on people. It's a... Uh, it's pretty horrific. Now, just to end this, here is something that I find to be an awesome chess move. I won't say much on that. Uh, don't want to, uh, call, I know a lot of people uh, that um, don't like the president are listening. I could just say, I'm smiling right now behind the microphone as you're watching this and you're like, oh, we already know. You don't. Welcome back. Sources telling Fox News just now that President Trump met with potential Supreme Court nominee Judge Amy Coney Barrett at the White House today. Barrett is thought to be a front runner. Meantime, many on the left furious with Republicans' plan to fill the now vacant Supreme Court seat. Protesters even showing up outside the homes of Senators Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham. And Democrats and some in the media are ramping up their rhetoric. Take a look. We need to be out in the streets. We need protests out there every single day. They are so beneath uh, any kind of uh, shamelessness that it's impossible to even talk to these people. It is not hyperbole. The actual balance of our democracy rests in the actions that we choose to make. Let this moment radicalize you. All right, um, Dagan, if there are calls for more protests, don't you think that that gives Republicans even more ad fodder 
to aim at the suburbs. Absolutely, because the protests won't be peaceful. They will end up being, I mean, Lich has pointed out, they're essentially calling for unrest in the streets. And these are Democrats that could not condemn for months violence, mayhem, rioting, looting, and destruction of people's livelihoods across this country. But now this is okay. It would be laughable if it wasn't so dangerous. And radical, she said, AOC says, you got to be radicalized, and this is not hyperbole, Greg. No, no, but you know, I, I was laughing at it, but in their minds, it's not hyperbole. This is intimidation. And remember, when they go to people's houses, Go to people's houses. I told you guys about color revolution with my, you know, twinkle toes person on me, right? I told you about that. Um, it's uh, pretty interesting. In our America, being terrorized for your opinions is not allowed. Not in our America. Cancel culture is not allowed. They're not going to intimidate. They're not going to those houses to intimidate those specific people. That's to intimidate everybody else. I'm doing it. Yeah. yeah, it's basically saying you're next. We're going to do this to McConnell, but maybe Jesse, you're going to be next. And this is what this does is it scares the crap out of people who should be speaking up. So you're going to see uh, moderate Democrats silent anchors of TV shows, Emmy nominees, uh, CEOs at corporations. These are the people that are always going to be thinking, you know, this crocodile, crocodile might eat Dagan McDowell, but that crocodile is not going to eat me. But sooner or later, that crocodile eats everybody who stays quiet. It's uh, and, and the worst thing about it is you keep hearing all these people saying, burn it down. Oh, if this nomination happens, burn it down. You're saying that after a billion dollars of damage was done with businesses and homes were burned down. You, no class at all. And, and you th it, I'm going to make one last word. If the government doesn't step up and deal with this violence, it's going to be up to the public because this is truly taxation without representation. Right. If you're not being protected, but you're paying your taxes, that Second Amendment starts looking miraculous. Juan, can the Democrats take this energy and turn it into votes for Joe Biden? Sure. I mean, look, I, I don't think you need AOC, Michael Moore, or anybody else, Dana, to make this case because people are so upset over what is taking place. This is an abuse of power. This is breaking <laughs> no, down American institutions. No, it's not. Those, dis by the way, Dagan, they had, they had people protesting, as you said, at McConnell's house, at Lindsey Graham's house. There's no violence. It's a legitimate protest. Not, legitimate how, protest. not, would you feel? not yet. Let me just say no, no, no. you, you were trying to make the case, pushing the fair button. Oh, gosh, this is going to result in violence. I actually there saw what happened no in New York City oh, in no. May, you, in June, oh, so in, in July, and all this. I've been attacked. Now you're talking about stuff that doesn't exist. And wow. this is my point to you. There was no violence. It does exist. There, there's no violence. In fact, you know, no, today. My today, entire neighborhood was looted. Oh, stop. Look. No, and they were, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. New what York is so stop, terrible. Juan? Let me just tell just you. Just because you were living in D.C. Oh, I'm, I'm living here right now. I'm walking, walking down, down this path. path. You I'm walking down the street. The cops are bored. Pictures. There's nobody here. That's how bad. The cops look bored. That's what's going on. But my point to you is, look. 50% jumping murder rate in August. No, no, no. In neighborhoods. But let me just say to your point, Dana. I don't approve of protest at people's homes. I don't think that's legit. But I do think that when people say that they are upset here, they have a legitimate right to protest. And that's what you're going to see. All right. Jesse, can you be quick? It's not abuse of power. And if it was, impeach him a second time, Juan. My point is this. They have to go crazy because 
The judicial branch is almost all the left has. All of their stuff is so borderline unconstitutional. It's so unpopular. They can't get it through the House and the Senate. They can't get a president to sign this stuff. They rely on judicial activism. Look at Pennsylvania. You know what they did, yeah. Dana? They said signatures don't have to match on ballots. So you could have someone with this beautiful cursive signature send in something with chicken scratch in capital letters, and you can't challenge that. And then they said, you can send in a ballot. It can come in three days after the election, no postage, and you have to accept that. All right, we got to run. That is come back. Source. Interesting, right? Uh, okay, I love Jesse. And uh, it was quite funny to watch Juan, uh, you know, uh, pedal the... <laughs> The things that, uh, what's his face? Uh, Nadler said that, that, that it was all love and there was nothing going on. It's only uh, you people saying it. Remember that? Um, I want to share with you one of the only senators that I would actually trust ever. I've met him. I'm a huge supporter of his. He's an actual good guy. And his net worth, under half a million. I mean, He's a per he is a long life public servant and hasn't become rich. That should tell you everything you need to know. The best opportunity. <laughs> Hearing from Leader McConnell, and where are you? Should a vote be held prior to the election on the president's nominee? Yeah, so it's a great point because I've been consistent. I think the vote ought to occur at a time that, first of all, gives us the best opportunity to confirm a conservative justice, and secondly, um, that allows us the best opportunity to maintain our majority in the Senate and or the White House, because we can get one more conservative on the court, but if Democrats get the White House and the Senate, they'll just correct that in their own uh, packing of the court. So there are a lot of political calculations, and, and uh, I trust, uh, I trust uh, our leader. I think that Mitch McConnell's the wizard of Washington. He knows the calculus better than anybody, and he'll make the right decision. But I'd support voting on it, so, you know, certainly before the end of this term. What are you hearing from Leader McConnell, and where are you? So two things. So one, he's talking political. He's like, look, if we don't get someone in now and they win the House or they win the Senate, then they're going to flip whatever it is. I get it. I'm going to tell you something on this. Yeah, he has a nice suit. Um, Wizard of Washington. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I saw, I heard that and I was like, I, I pictured a turtle in a, uh, a cape. But um. That's Kevin Kramer. He's a senator. He used to be the congressman of North Dakota. And he became senator. President Trump actually asked him to run for Senate. And he was kind of thinking about it. And while he was thinking about it and didn't make a decision, his son suddenly died too. Hmm. And after his son passed away, he decided that he's going to run for Senate. But um, he is a public servant. Uh, he is, yeah, this is, North Dakota is one of the most corrupt states in, you think California is corrupt? North Dakota is the worst. They're the ones with the smoking jackets that put things under the bed with the, you know, that sit cross-legged with robes. I kid you not. Uh, and, you know, their poop doesn't stink and they're the worst. But this guy is 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 the real deal. I've met him in person lots of times. I have really unflattering photos with him. He is uh, the senator for um, North Dakota. And um, he's really down to earth, really down to earth. And he's a senator for the people, not just his constituents. But what he said was he was speaking from a, a position of a politician, right, as a senator and what his concerns are as a senator.
But what the president's concern is, is not so much to uh, appoint someone um, as a justice because of political affiliations, but to appoint a justice that will uphold the Constitution of the United States of America. That is what is important right now, that we have the right person put forward. Now, Amy was floated around with Kavanaugh. So they have had years to dig, orchestrate, fabricate, and create a narrative that they want. They do. Um, they've had it. So it's important for us to remember that they've had time to think about this and think about her. So uh, there's five people he's looking at. He said there's five people. And Amy, everyone's saying at the top of the list, we shall see who he decides. And it will be quick. And this will be something the Senate will put through pretty quick because it's important to do so. Now, the reason, the reason we need to ensure that we have the right SCOTUS is for things like this. Just, this is how you change culture of a nation. President Kennedy makes news on many fronts in his weekly press conference. To reporters crowding the State Department auditorium, he restates America's stand against any red China threat to Kamoi and Matsu Islands. He discusses his trade expansion and Medicare programs. Asked his opinion of the Supreme Court decision banning prayer in schools, President says, Well, I haven't seen the measures in the Congress, and you'd have to make a determination of what the language was and what the effect it would have on the First Amendment. The uh, Supreme Court uh, has made a judgment. A good many people, uh, obviously, will disagree with it. Others will agree with it. But I think that uh, it is uh, important for us, if we're going to maintain our constitutional principle, that we uh, support uh, Supreme Court decisions, even when we may not agree with them. In addition, we have, in this case, a very easy remedy and that is to pray ourselves. And I would think that uh, it would be a welcome reminder to every American family that uh, we can uh, pray a good deal more at home, we can attend our churches with a good deal more uh, fidelity, and uh, we can make uh, the true meaning of prayer much more important in the lives of all of our children. That power is very much open to us. And I would hope that uh, as a result of this decision that uh, all American parents uh, will intensify their efforts at home. So it's not the first time that Congress and SCOTUS um, did everything in their power to railroad everything American, especially faith. So we must have faith in humanity, but that only stems from the fact that you have faith in yourself. You have to ask yourself, because this is going to be very important in the next few weeks. Will I stand by every single American citizen and their rights, or am I going to choose on if I like their face, their message, the way they look, or just to the bare bones fact that they're an American citizen?
This is important. This is very, very important because you cannot have faith in humanity and trust in God. If you yourself are judgmental and do not have the core values, it's very important. This is going to be very, very, very important. I can't stress it enough. And the examples that I brought out in the first half of the show were current and specific so that you can see it for demonstrative purposes, okay? To the core, you can't say this person deserves free speech and this one doesn't. No, everyone deserves it. Now, their free speech will dictate their future, of course, but we should all support it. We should all support our core values that we claim to have. If you claim that the U.S. Constitution should be enforced beyond anything, then you wouldn't ask for cutting corners. You wouldn't say, well, good for them. They deserve this. No, their rights are being trampled. Why are you okay with this? Where are you? Why are you not standing up for every single person's rights that are being violated? American citizens, again, your core values will dictate our future. So let's start now because there isn't much time with their new strategy. <laughs> Can't believe they pulled that. If you don't stay true to the core values of what it means to be American, and that is, I may not like you, I may think you're nuts, I may think you're ugly, I may think anything, I may think anything under the sun, but you are an American, and therefore, you deserve to have your rights that this Constitution affords to each and every one of us. For anyone purporting or finding joy in other people's rights being violated, that tells you that they are not truly patriotic. So, this is important. We must remember at core. Oh, lots of us, I'm I'm victim of it too. Ooh, when we get angry, we say things. But when it comes to the crunch of it, right? When it comes down to it, what do you do? Example. There's a person who I had conversations with that asked me um if I was to um Ooh, can I say that? Let me think how I'm going to say this. Give me a second. Um, so there's a person that did something that's not allowed, which is harassing a minor. And so there's a criminal complaint. And there were a few discussions with various institutions this morning that said, well, we're going to ban this person from going here, here, and here based on that. I said, I, I don't know if that's even okay. I mean, maybe we should just focus. And I don't like this person. Speaking of Caitlin Bennett, I don't like this person uh, because this person is an agitator. You know, she doesn't believe in God. She believes that people should have abortions. That's the truth. And if anyone says anything different, it's a lie. Uh, she, she goes and instigates things. So people wanted to use 
you know, the case that my child has against her to do other things that are to violate rights. And I didn't find that fair. No matter how angry I am, I didn't find it fair. No matter how much of a hypocrite this person is and how dangerous they are and how disgusting they are and what level they went to, I still did not find it fair because America, right? So I do as I preach, you know, I do as I preach. Uh, And yes, she did poop herself. She admitted that. Um, I do as I preach. Even though it would make me, you know, that side of me that wants revenge. That side of me that wants revenge was like, yeah, yeah. I thought, damn, yes, but on the merit of what crime was committed and the actions that were taken, that should not be shaped in another way. Ooh, it was so hard to, guys, I was smiling ear to ear when I was like, oh, yes, you know that side of you that's like, oh, but um, I was really, I was really pissed at myself for being so righteous at some point. I was like, maybe I should have done it. Maybe when I was talking to them, I should have, but it's, it was so hard. And you guys know, man, I really wanted her to, to, to cry and fall. And I was like, no, it's the wrong way. Cause it's not my job to issue vengeance and go against my core principles. It's not my job. My job is to make sure that the good things are upheld. Hmm? And I will complain and, you know, be on the system, right? Get Use our system, use our judicial system, have faith in our system. Now that we have a, a good man in office that is doing this, not because he was going to become famous or because he's appeasing anyone, he's actually appeasing himself. And I'll tell you why. A lot of people ask me, where do you get the energy to do all this stuff? Like, seriously, you're chippy. You can talk, but obviously I can talk because I have knowledge of this. I don't have to skim around and print out documents to have a conversation for an hour. Um, you know, usually I prepare for my show 10 minutes beforehand. <laughs> I'm pretty that type of person. And it's coffee, cigarettes, and love of country. I mean, you get, you know, when someone asks you, I, I, um, had this conversation about a week ago with um, someone and they said, well, what's, what's the point? I mean, what, how can you define happiness? And a lot of people, you know, will tell you, yeah, you know, some extra zeros might make out, whatever. But you know, the one contract that I still have since 2009 is one of the most demeaning per se, the way that I'm treated, um, contracting gigs I have because people speak to me rudely. And there are many times that people are like, well, why do you let them treat you like that? You know, like, oh, they do. But you know what I like? The fact that I'm helping someone, even though the person that's putting me there to help 
isn't very nice. They're very boxy, you know, square. The person that I'm actually helping is why I'm doing it. The best currency your soul can ever have is by helping other people. And yes, kind of late in life, I I, I realized it, uh, you know, I realized that I like that four years ago uh, when I had the opportunity to go into a brick and mortar uh, agency and I said, I can't stop doing this. And, you know, and it's like, what? It's like $60 an hour and that, and it goes by the minute, right? But why would I give that up? When I know that I'm helping someone when they're at their lowest and they don't have an advocate, why would I give that up to know that I've helped that person, you know, in very difficult times? I enjoy that. And I think in a way, the president, that's why he's not aging. That's why he's always got energy because he really likes what he's doing. And, you know, me uh, talking about current events, global and domestic, right? I like it because I know I'm giving something out there. Now, who, you know, cashes in on what I'm giving is another thing. You know, which heart cashes in, which mind cashes in the information is another thing. But it gives me, it makes me happy. And I think if all of us do things because we know it's making someone else happy, that makes you happy twice as happy. Does that, I, I hope that made some kind of sense. So that would explain the energy um, and the ability to do what you do when you're happy. So the president is a happy man. He's very, he likes what he's doing. So since he likes what he's doing, he's not tired. And the same goes for me. Uh, I do a lot of things. Like if you knew what I've done since 5 a.m. this morning, you'd be like, damn, how'd you pack that time? Yep, multitasking, that's what's up. Uh, So this time that I spend with you is my downtime. Just wanted to point that out. Um, And it's fun. So um, even though it's not work, even though it's not, you know, standing on top of my kid and being the teacher because, you know, they're doing online education and that's really just assigning it to me, really. Uh, Doing something for other people is doing something for you. Um, So have that in thought when you're doing something and please make sure that you look at your core. You look at your core and what you really stand for. And you don't have to share it. That's all for you, right? That's all for you. But it'll be very, very important going forward because I told you after Labor Day, the gloves are off and it's going to be insane because you haven't realized it, but this is an actual revolution. You haven't seen it. I mean, you're seeing some of it, but you're in the middle of it. It's like, you know, back in the day when there were wars and people we're shooting guns at each other. The people milking the cow down the road were none the wiser per se, right? This is you right now. You're seeing it happen and your head spinning because so many things are happening at once. You're not understanding this is a revolution. This can turn bloody in a heartbeat really quick. So it's very, very important that you have that conversation with yourself and say, I don't like this person but I do support the fact 
that they're an American and they deserve rights. Okay. It's really important that we do that. So on that note, I'm going to see you guys tomorrow. Same time, same place. Stay frosty. I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start a flame in your heart. In my heart, I have but one. Desire